Welcome to Live Free, Ride Free, where we talk to people who have lived self-actualized lives on their own terms and find out how they got there, what they do, how we can get there, what we can learn from them, how to live our best lives, find our own definition of success, and most importantly, find joy. I'm your host, Rupert Isaacson, New York Times best-selling author of The Horse Boy, founder of New Trails Learning Systems and LongRideHome.com. You can find details of all our programs and shows on RupertIsaacson.com. On this podcast for Live Free, Ride Free, I have a legend. I have Warwick Schiller. Um, for those of you who know him, he doesn't need much introduction, but for those of you who don't yet know him, well, you should, and you will now. Warwick, with his attuned horsemanship, started an online library after, video library after enormous success as a rainer and trainer, including going to the World Equestrian Games, he's Australian, and so on. His video library on, on horse training has a bazillion people constantly downloading it and so on. However, that's really in some ways the least of his talents, not to denigrate that at all. Warwick's an extraordinary human, and you're going to see this as we go through. And our conversation, I warn you, is going to go quite far from horses. It might circle back to horses from time to time. But Warwick, I think like many people who have achieved a sort of certain level of success within the horse training world, has arrived at that point where he has to ask himself, well, well, what now? Is that it? And what he's done with that question is highly, highly, highly unusual and basically helping to make the world a better place. So Warwick Schiller, the man, the legend, the explorer of human consciousness and other consciousnesses. Hello, and thank you for coming on. Hey, it's an honor to be here with you, Rupert. Those of you who might have listened to Warwick Schiller's amazing podcast called Journey On, uh, which again has about a bazillion people listening to it every minute might recall that he interviewed me a couple of years ago. And in the first time we tried it, the conversation went to shamanism rather quickly and the equipment shut down, which is, and works like, oh, I can't understand what's going on. And I'm like, yeah, actually this is not atypical. So I warn you guys, something like that could happen. If there's silence, suddenly we'll have to restart because sometimes when you go into the shamanic electronic equipment tends to malfunction, shut down, do funny things. Anyone who has worked in the indigenous world around healing ceremonies has had and tried to record them or, or film them has had this experience. Just before we jump in with Warwick, I mean, remember that the main theme of live free, ride free is self-actualization is people who have managed to live life on their terms in a way that helps humanity move forward in some sort of way. And as you know, on this show, we don't really care whether you do that with horses, balloons, bicycles, elephants, or playing armpit orchestra. The important thing is that you do it. So Warwick has come in through horses. He's still with horses, but his life story and where he's going with it now is, is really quite extraordinary. So Warwick, tell us about you. Who is Warwick Schiller? I'm very deep in trying to figure that out right now for myself. I... I had an idea of who I thought I was for quite a long time, and now I'm not so sure. Who but were you? Well, short version was I grew up on a farm in Australia, rode horses a lot as a kid. Got we, we, we showed quarter horses, you know, so we showed Western stuff when I was a kid. I grew up riding in pony club. I started riding in pony club 
and uh, always had a fascination about the Western lifestyle, you know, the, the horses, you know, the way the horses were in the Western part of the United States. And uh, I actually, when I was a teenager, I, they used to have this, the Australian Quarter Horse Association used to have this youth world cup team and they would, every year there would be America, Canada, Germany, Italy, New Zealand, Australia, maybe one other European, oh, England would have this youth world cup team. And, uh, that's something I wanted to do because the year I was going to try out for it, it was going to be in the United States. And I was just fascinated by the United States. And so I went to the qualifying show and beat everybody there and still didn't get picked on the team and was a little bit bitter about that. But I always, you know, I wanted to go to America and learn about the horse stuff here. And so eventually I ended up, when I left school, I worked in a bank, but at the time they could, they would give you, they would give you a, a year's leave without pay. So you still have a job when you come back, but if you were young and wanted to travel or whatever, they would, you know, it was a nationwide banking company bank. And so I took a year's leave without pay, came to the U S in the end of 1990. So I was here for most of 91. And uh, when I was leaving to go back to Australia, sorry, I got a job working for a horse trainer. And uh, when I was leaving to go back to Australia after about a year, we shook hands on the veranda and he said, you know, if you want to come back, I'll give you a job. He said, you could do this for a living if you wanted to. And I'd never had any self-confidence at all, like pretty much none whatsoever. And so for him, you know, the only reason I actually came back was because he told me you could do this for a living if you wanted to. I never would have told myself you could do this for a living if you wanted to. So it was, it was meeting, it was him saying that. And I'd met my wife, Robin, who, you know, I had met her in the meantime and I chased her all year. She ran like a scalded cat. And when I moved back to Australia, you know, her, we didn't have the internet at the time. So when we moved back, I moved back to Australia, her letters to me became a lot nicer. She actually missed me chasing her. And so there was that and the offer of a, a job. So I ended up, I was, I was home for six months and then came back six months later. I've got a couple of questions. So you grew up in a farm in Australia and to a lot of people that wouldn't be so very different to the lifestyle of the Western USA. Given that Australia is a, a big place, lots of land, lots of freedom, a fairly expansive, optimistic worldview, very much a horse-based culture, ranching, you know, working horses uh, are very much part of the culture there. Why not stay within the Australian motif? Why the Western motif? You know, well, that's a really good question. My father, my father was a rodeo rider. So he rode in rodeos, did all the events and we're always around that Western stuff. We weren't, you know, we weren't around a bunch of show jumpers or dressage people or whatever. So I think that was, you know, something that got ingrained in me early on, the fascination for that sort of thing. So it was an idea to go to the source of the style of horsemanship that you were yeah, and I think so. And, 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 you know, all the accoutrements that come along with it, you know, the, how they dress and all that sort of stuff. I, yeah, I but so you've got that and you've got that with the Aussies why too. Was you guys have the crocodile dundee hats and you've got the accent and you've got the swagger and you've got the, so, I mean, you could, to the outside eye, you could sort of exchange one for the other. So what made the Australian one not so cool just because it was known to you and therefore not exotic? Yeah, I, I it could be that I, I really have no idea and I've never really given that much thought why it was that, but I, I was always fascinated. Maybe it was watching Western movies on TV, you know, yeah. as a kid. Yeah, I could see that. And then my second question there is you talked about having 
almost no self-confidence. But you said that very quickly after talking about an initial, quite a lot of show success. So if you'd had all this show success with horses quite early in your life, why the lack of self-confidence? Where did that come from? I didn't. Well, as a, you know, we showed horses as, as kids and I had my older brother, he had all the show success. He won everything. You know, he was the, the whoop to do. And yeah, I was, I mean, I, I wasn't, wasn't. Did you kill him? Is he still around? He's still, he's still around. Yeah. He's still around. Um, yeah, no. And you know, I don't think I was, I'm, I, yeah, I did say that I won all the stuff at the qualifying show or whatever. And I was okay, but not, no, I, I wasn't a standout by any means. You know, I had a good horse that year, which is really, really helpful, but you know, yet yeah, hadn't, didn't really have much self-confidence about myself in any would, way, shape or form. So. Would you say that deep down on some intuitive level that you did, because after all you, you didn't stay working in the bank, you took a chance to go to the U S to give it a, a go. So there was a, a must've been a part of you that believed in yourself there. Would you say it or not? You know what there, there must be, but I think, you know, my parts were pretty fragmented to where, you know, I used to think I didn't have any intuition. You know, I spent a lot of time in my head, not so much in my body, but I, but I, yeah, the, all, all the, yeah, there's, there's, I, I think that's what must have been there was I had some intuition I wasn't even aware of. Right. Or e either that or, you know, my give a shit was busted. Like I just wanted to do what I wanted to do without right. giving too much thought as to the, as to the outcome of where is this going to be in 20 years or whatever. You know? Indeed. But that takes a certain, that takes a certain innate, not just courage, but also it does, I think, take a certain innate intuition. And one of the things I liked that you just said was perhaps you were intuitive without knowing you were intuitive. And I, cause I, I feel that describes actually a lot of people, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I, I, you know, I'm in my head. I don't have intuition. And I don't know if I buy that. I think everybody has intuition, but they're not necessarily trained to recognize it or value it. Perhaps would you, what do you think to that? Yeah. Not trying to recognize it, value it or even be aware of it, you know, if, how to listen to it, how to tap into it. And I'm only just, I think, getting to that point these days, but I, I do, you know, I, I was very dissociated as a kid. I spent a lot of time, all my life spent a lot of time in my head. And so I think, you know, you said something about courage there a minute ago, and I've always thought that I wasn't, I wasn't courageous at all. And, you know, you've just been, um, doing some things with Jane Pike and Jane was at our house. This is interesting. Jane was at our house. Oh, possibly. I think it was, the, she came out for the world of question games, but I think it was the year after that. So it must've been 2019 and she was at our house and I had asked her, I said, have you ever seen that movie free solo? Have you seen the movie free solo? I have not seen it, but I've heard much about it. Okay. So, you know, Alex Honnold, one of the world's best rock climbers, and he free solos El Capitan in Yosemite, which is a 3000 foot sheer granite cliff. And he climbs it with no ropes. And we were talking about that. And Jane said to me, you know, the thing about Alex is he is fully aware that he could die any moment and he still does it. I said, yeah, well, yeah, but it's not just him. I mean, there's a lot of people that free solo. She goes, yes, but I think what they do 
is they dissociate from the fact they could die and that's how they can do it. Whereas Alex is fully aware and fully buys into, hey, I could die doing this. He, it's not, he doesn't dissociate from, he's fully aware of it and still does it. And that statement is to not be thinking for a number of years. And I think when you said, oh yeah, you were courageous, giving up your job, going to America, whatever. I think I was dissociated from the fact, what if this doesn't work? I think I've always been quite dissociated from the fact of what if this doesn't work, which has allowed me to do things with no, no idea if it's going to work or not and still doing it. And might, and it might seem like bravery to some people, and maybe this is just my self judgment of myself, but it might seem like bravery to some people, but it's not like, I'm like, okay, I'm going to try this and I might be destitute and living on the, on the street or it might work and I'm going to do it anyway. I think I have dissociated from negative outcomes from things. And that's how I've been able to kind of, you know, go with the flow of the universe and go, Hey, I'm, I'm going to do whatever you present to me. But I do think it's, I, I've been pretty good at dissociating from the possibility of things going wrong. And I'm, and I'm not sure if that's a, I'm not sure that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think that's what it is. Well, maybe, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners will be pondering this right now. I mean, I think one of the things which we're all, I think, more impressed with each other than we are with ourselves, because we all know ourselves and we all know what, you know, idiots we are, because we remember ourselves, our younger versions, and we still see ourselves doing the same silly stuff and thinking the same silly stuff we always did and felt. However, I think that we often don't value our own forms of courage. I think we, we take those for granted. So you saying this to me, I'm sitting here, you know, listening to it and thinking, well, yeah, but is that a bad thing? I mean, if that, that just sounds to me like a different courage style rather than lack of courage. And yes, but you're not the voice in my head. Ah, yes. The voice in my head tells me totally different. That voice. Okay. So do you still have that voice? Oh yeah. 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 I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm coming to grips with that with that voice. And I just recently had a, um, bit of a, not an out of body journey, but a bit of a journey, you know, uh, where I came to realize that that voice is not the real me. Yeah. And he's the, he's the, I don't know if I'm going to call him the bad guy, but yeah, it's like that guy's not the real me. And the, and, and, you know, I've had for quite a long time, I've had these, you know, as I've been down this path of self-discovery or whatever, I keep on getting to deep places. I keep, I keep getting this feeling of, well, I've had this with like plant medicine uh, as well. I keep getting this feeling of there's these others that I'm going to have to answer to for all my, you know, failings and yada, and it's these others. And I, and I, it just occurred to me recently that these others I've been scared of their, of their, their judgment or what they're going to tell me or whatever, because there's going to be a lot of scorn and whatever involved in it. I just occurred to me the other day, I believe that others is actually the true me. That is the, so it's not, it's it kind of dawned on me. It's not something to be afraid of, like the opinions of whoever these others are going to be to tell me how I'm screwing shit up. I realized here recently that that's, I think that's actually the real me trying to get rid of all the, the shadow me's you might say, or help get rid of them. 
Is the real you a critical voice or is the real you an encouraging voice? Oh, I think it's going to, I think it's going to be an encouraging voice, but I think first it's got to call me to task for a lot of different things, but it's, it's different than if I, I, I for me, at least it's, I'm looking at it differently now than it. I just had this epiphany that I shouldn't be worried about these, these, this guy, this, whatever this entity is, this knowledge, this energy, whatever it is, that's going to tell me all the things I'm doing wrong because that is me. And, 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 and this, you know, all the negative voices I have in my head these days is not actually me. It's going to be trying to banish that, I think. So let's just return to, you've gone back to America. The good news is that Robin has not run away completely. There's a job. No, she slowed down when I got back. She allowed <laughs> me, me to catch her when I got back. Just, or at least, at least get one hand on the, on, on the, on, on the material of the sleeve. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Before being required to chase over the next mountain range. But tell us what happens then. You, you arrive here, you set up a life, then what? Well, I went, I, I came back and I went back to work for that guy for another couple of years. And then Robin and I were going to get married and I couldn't work for this guy and be married at the same time. So why not? We, uh, he wanted to marry you? No, he didn't want to marry me, but he, uh, yeah, rather imposing figure. And you, you know, you're basically on call 24 hours a day sort of thing. So I was living there on the, on the place. Yeah. So yeah that would not be a good. What marriage. state was that out of interest? Fear. The state of fear, <laughs> right? Um, is that is that the fear in the upper forty above the lower forty-eight, or that's fear the Hawaii. fear over on the left next to yeah. the next to the Pacific Ocean, California? Yes, yeah. I've only yeah. ever lived yeah. there in California. Pacific fear, got it. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so you realise that with this particular trainer, you have to be all in. There's no other way, so you have to you have to to go. So what do you do? Uh, I got a job working for some. Some people who had, they had a stallion and they were raising some horses and, and so I got a job working for them, which means we were going to move. So Robin had to get a new job. And, you know, the thing is, Robin has always been the breadwinner in our family as far as having the real job with the health insurance. As you know, health insurance in America is ridiculously expensive, you know, self-employed, you can't get health, health insurance very good. And, but you know, Robin was into horses. And so if you think about the business of training horses. Not without its dangers. Yeah. Well, yeah. Not without its dangers, but, but because we're in business doing that, think, think about if you, let's say she, so Robin was in human resources. Let's say she's just a person who's in human resources, but she wants to go to horse shows on the weekend. She's got to buy horses. She's got to buy a truck and she's got to buy a trailer. She's got to buy a saddle. She's got to buy some boots. She's got to buy some brushes. All of that stuff comes out of your income after tax. Whereas I'm a horse trainer and you know, she wants a truck and she wants a trailer and she wants a horse and she wants a saddle. We can write all that stuff off. So it, it, it's, you know, she was the main, she was the main breadwinner for a long time, but I, you know, her being that breadwinner kind of allowed me to follow my nose sort of thing, follow my interests sort of thing with no having to worry about the, the negative outcomes of that. And so now you, you say very glibly, well, I left and I got a job somewhere else, but I also lived in North America for many years. So I know that just showing up in North America 
to work courses is not the same as having a work permit and a green card and that sort of thing. It took me quite a while to get all that sorted. Did you get married right away or were you having to go under the table like many of us? So- oh, no, I'd, I'd been under the table for you know, th- the first three years. So then yeah. I was, but we were married. So we got a, well, I had a green card by this point in time. And what's really interesting is if you've ever seen that movie green card, anybody listening has seen that movie green card with the French guy with the big nose, what's his name? Gerard. Gerard. Wait, wait. It is just like that when you get, I mean, we used to be back then at least, when you go in for the interview, they want to, you know, they separate you. They want to know how does he have his coffee in the morning? What color is his toothbrush? Which side of the bed does he sleep on? They're trying to really make sure that you're not marrying for the wrong reason. Know, just for the green, yeah, just for the green card. Yeah. Yeah. I went through all that. I remember. And I, I like you did many years under the table as a horse trainer, which of course is an immensely physically dangerous thing to do because if you take a wreck. You, there is no health care. And it's interesting. I'm sure you have this. I look back at the risks I took, you know, I was doing jumping horses and i and I was falling off them as you do gravity. And uh, it didn't occur to me perhaps because I grew up in England with the national health, perhaps because I, like you, I disassociated or whatever, but it didn't occur to me what could happen if I took a wreck beyond a certain point. Did you ever have that worry or did, again, did you just push that out of your mind? No, I didn't think I ever, ever considered it. You know, I've always been healthy, never go to doctors, whatever. So it wasn't like, you know, that was something I'm really, really concerned about. Especially when horses jump on you, smash you against walls, stomp you. Yeah. And otherwise send you to the doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Or you just kind of soldier on whatever. Indeed. All right. So you're soldiering on. You're a horse trainer now, you're married to Robin. You're both of you showing, you're, you're both competing. Uh, mm-hmm. Got a horse training business, okay. She's got a quote unquote real job, but you're clearly doing this together. You're clearly building an equestrian endeavor together. How does this pan out? What, what happens next? Well, I was really interested in the reining at the, you know, that's where I came to America when to learn about reining horses. And so we, and initially I had to, take whatever. Oh, sorry. I worked for those people for a year. And then we decided to move down to where her parents live, where we are right now, actually. And so then I went out on my own, like I'm training for the public and I wasn't, I wasn't ready to go out my own train for the public, but I did anyway. And the, you know, the thing is when I, the trainer I worked for, he only competed at the highest levels of say the, the reigning. And so that's all I knew. And so when I first started training, I started training out of this, this public boarding facility thing. And there was a trainer there and I was thinking, oh my goodness, there's a trainer. I'm going to learn so much watching this guy ride and just being around him. I'll be asking questions and whatever. And when I saw this guy, who's a trainer, he's a, he's a professional trainer. And when I saw how he was with horses, I'm like, this guy's useless. And then what I realized was there is all sorts of levels of trainers because there's no regulation of it. You can hang a shingle out and say, I'm a horse trainer. And I'd only ever been exposed to the ones at the upper levels. I thought that was the only level there was. I didn't realize there was all these levels and, you know, people can spend all their life being a horse trainer in an area and they go to the little local show that's on once every two weeks or a month or whatever. And they take their clients there and they never get any better. They don't want to get any better. I I didn't realize that, that that was an actual that was a natural thing. So that was a, you know, that was a bit of a, an eye opener, but anyway, so I, my, 
in-laws gave me a weanling or a yearling that they got from a friend of theirs for my, sorry, our wedding. Present. Robin's family were also horsey. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mum's, Robin's mum's family horsey. Yeah. And so we got this, I think it's a weanling or a yearling, but end up, you know, as he was, when he was old enough, I trained him and showed him in the reining and he was, he was the first reining horse I had to where I could go to horse shows with a, with a horse. And so people started seeing me compete on this horse and like do good. So then I slowly started getting clients from the area who wanted to get into the reining or have a horse trained a certain way or whatever. And, and it built up from there. And by the, we got married in 94 and by about 99, I was, I just had reining horses. That's all I had. So that's, you know, I was, I'm just going to interject for people who are listening, who do not know what reining is. And there may be some reining is, you could say that the dressage of Western riding to some degree, um, it's the finer riding of, of patterns rather than roping cows or riding the rodeo events. Would you, would you say that that's more or less accurate Warwick, just for those listeners who might not be f fully familiar with what reining is? Yeah. It's, I mean, one other way to describe it is like ice skating on horseback. Okay. But yeah, cross between dressage and ice skating. Okay. The horse, and, and the horse has no problem keeping the skates on. They don't wobble through the ankle. Oh, we've got to strap, strap the skates on pretty tight. Yeah. 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 Horses on ice. Okay. So now you're doing quite well. You've got a, a decent horse. You're attracting clients and you're away. You're, you're, you're good. Why not just stop there? Why not just be a horse trainer? Well, my son was, so the, when my, you've met my son, Tyler, when Tyler was in kindergarten, we homeschooled him and we were traveling all over the United States. We drove from this coast to the West, the East coast showing horses. And, but then we thought, no, he's not getting socialized the way he should. So he, you know, he needs to go to a, a real school. But and then we got thinking, you know what, the better you get at this horse training caper, especially with horse shows and stuff, the more you're gone. And I'm not sure that is is something we want for Tyler. And so we actually, during, this is during 2003, this is, this is how the universe works. During 2003, we actually flew back to Australia, my hometown, looking at opening a Subway sandwich shop. I know nothing about retail or Subway sandwiches or whatever, but we thought that's a franchise we could get into. We could just have a regular lifestyle, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, we, we flew back there and it, you know, I contacted Subway. And it turns out that the town that I grew up in, that my family lives in, didn't have a Subway sandwich shop, hadn't ever had one. And then the day before I called Subway, someone had got the franchise for that particular town. Okay. So we traipse, we come back to America. So I had this client who was a, a Silicon Valley headhunter. He was at one point in time, he was the biggest headhunter in Silicon Valley. So he was an IT executive recruiter. Okay. And he would like, he's. He's the guy that introduced Tim Cook to Steve Jobs to take over Apple. Okay. The guy's name's Rick Devine. Really cool guy. And his wife was a client of mine. Wife and daughter were clients of mine. And so about October that year, so I think it was in July that we went back to Australia, about October that year, Rick calls me one day and I knew they were building this big fancy facility over on the coast near Santa Cruz. Rick calls me one day and he said, hey, Vicky, so his wife's name is Vicky, he said, Vicky's looking for, you know, of any old, you know, horse trainers who are retired now, who are older, who, you know, don't really want to compete anymore, but they, they want a job. What Vicky would like to have is a private horse trainer and, you know, 
but they've got to be of a certain level and a certain mindset and stuff. And I said to Rick, you know what? I don't know anybody that worked for that because anyone who's qualified for the job is not looking for the job. And anybody who wants that job is not qualified for the job. Because he had said an older guy, he's, you know, towards the end of his career or whatever. And I said, but I'll keep an eye out for you. So I got off the phone with Rick and all of a sudden it hit me like, hang on, that could be an opportunity for me. Because Vicky is very, very particular about how horses are trained and treated and all that sort of stuff. And not, not a lot of people would fit that job. I'm like, that, that might work for me. And Robin was actually in Columbus, Ohio. So for you guys not from America, that's on the other side of the country from where we live. She was at a horse show there. And I, I called her and I told her and I said, what are you thinking? She says, calling back. So I called Rick back and I said, hey, I'd, actually, I'd be interested in that. And so we ended up, I got, went to work for Rick and Vicky for three years, 2004, 2005, 2006. So I, I'd had, I had a, a barn with like 20 regular clients, you know, 20 horses in training. Because over here, with like say with the rainy, our horse stays in training with the trainer. It's not like you send the horse for 30 days and it goes home or whatever. They, they stay with the trainer, you know. So I had these, I had about 20 horses in training full time. And I'd had a young fellow work for me for five years. And, and I'd got to the point where I said to him, you know what? I can, I've taught you what I know, but you need to go to Texas and work for one of the big reigning trainers. You know, what I am good at is getting the best out of average horses, but those guys don't deal with average horses. They only deal with best horses. And there's a whole different way of going about things to doing that. So I'd send him off. Well, anyway, I had to call him and say, Hey, do you want to come back and take over here? Cause what I didn't want to do was leave all these, a lot of the people that I had as clients weren't interested in the ranging in the first place. They just started coming for lessons and then they saw the horse. like, oh, I'd like to try that. And said all these clients, I feel, felt like I couldn't leave them to hang out to drive. So I had this young fellow come back and took over and we went over to, and we worked for the divines for three years. And it was great because I could, I could drop Tyler off at school in the morning. You know, I had basically, I was my own boss. You know, I had a eight stall barn that cost a million dollars to build, had copper gutters and downspouts and was designed by an architect and, you know, it was all beautiful. So I dropped Tyler off at school, I'd go out and ride horses and then I'd go and pick him up from school, bring him out to the ranch and he'd ride the quad around or shoot the BB gun or whatever he would do. So we spent lots of time together. But what was funny was a couple of years after working for him, we were having dinner one night, having a few drinks and Rick said to me, remember that day I called you? And, and uh, I said, yeah. And he said, as soon as I got off the phone, I turned to Vicky and I said, yeah, I got him. Uh, I, like, I didn't even know you were, I didn't even know you were, were, were headhunting me. He's that good. Like he, he didn't ask me. He asked if I knew of anybody who might be, and somehow his intuition let him know that I might be available to that. So interesting. Did you, then, for the, did you ever um, go to him for masterclasses in intuition at that point? No, he wouldn't have known. I wouldn't know what intuition was if you've bitten on the ass back then. Mm-hmm. Um, so after three years of working for them, then Vicky decided, no, nah, I, might, I might want to move to Colorado and live in the snow. And so I was going to have to do something different. And we weren't very far from, you know, we we're probably half an hour's drive from where we had been training horses. And I kind of felt like it wasn't fair for me to move back to the area that I was in before and then steal all my old clients back off the guy that had given these clients to. And so we decided, and this is another one of those things. I didn't think the, the negative possibilities, but I said, why don't we move to Australia? Why don't we move back to Australia? You know, um, we'd done okay a little bit in the real estate market here. Like 
money and moved back to Australia. You know, Australia's cheap place to live. And we bought two quarter horse stallions. We thought, oh, we'll go on the breeding business. And we moved back to Australia and we were there for four years. After three and a half years, Rob said, you know what? I want to move home. And so she moved back like in the middle of 2010. And Tyler and I stayed on to sell whatever horses and cars and houses and whatever house we had. Tyler is how old by now? Tyler was 14 when we moved back. So he was like, he was there from 10 to 14. Uh, So we moved there with a 40 foot container, two horses, two dogs, and came back with a 20 foot container and two dogs. Okay. And sold the horses while we're there. And And this is where life takes a turn. I was, when we were there, uh, we were both on the board of the, the reigning association in Australia. It's called reigning Australia. And we were at a board meeting and in about 2000 and maybe seven, eight, something like that. And they said, so Equitana is the biggest horse expo in Australia. It's a different company than the Equitana in Germany, but still it's called Equitana. It's the biggest horse expo in Australia. And, and we were at a board meeting and they read out some correspondence that Equitan had asked, could somebody come down and do a reigning demonstration at Equitana? And I said, yeah, well, I'm probably the closest. I was only about eight hours away from there. You know, some of the people on the board were 24 hours drive from where Equitana is. It's in Melbourne at the bottom of Australia. And so I said, yeah, I'll, I'll go to do a bit of a demo. And then Equitana contacted me. They have one of those, you know, those cult starting competitions, like the one in America that's called road to the horse this one's called way of the horse and they wanted to know would i seeing i was coming down would i be the in arena commentator like the color commentator for this cult starting competition like so, sure and so that's the one of the main attractions there the stadium there is full of people so there's like three or four thousand people in there every day watching this thing and i get to stand and talk on the microphone for a couple of hours in front of a crowd a big crowd of people for like three days in a row and i was just helping it out you know they asked me to do it there was no um, plan to do anything with that. Anyway, after that, I had people start calling me up saying, Hey, we like the way you, um, we like the way you explain things at, at Equitana. Would you like to come up and do a clinic for us? I'm like, well, I hadn't ever really thought of doing clinics, but yeah, why not? And so I started doing clinics. And so I did clinics, quite a lot of clinics the last few years I was in Australia. So when we moved back to the U S Robin got her old job in HR back, uh, we moved back to the U S and I've got to start all over again all over again. And I, um, you know, I started getting in problem horses, problem warm bloods, whatever. And I started videoing them and making these little videos on YouTube because what I had seen from the clinics was that, oh, there's some very basic premises about horses that people don't understand. And it causes them all sorts of problems. And if they understood these basic things, they'd have a lot less trouble. So I started making these little videos, putting them on Facebook. Facebook had just really started a couple of years before that. And YouTube and they, people were liking them and people wanted a lot. They said, can you do longer videos? Like show us more stuff. Well, at the time, YouTube would only allow you to put a 10 minute clip on unless you had a certain number of views on your channel. And so I couldn't put longer videos on YouTube. And so I found a video hosting site that would host my videos, but they wanted to charge me 300 bucks a month to put the videos on there. And so then I had to start charging for the videos just because otherwise I was going to be losing money doing it. And that took off. And that's my main business these days is, you know, this online video library I have, but it all started out that there was no plan to monetize it. There's no plan to monetize 
going to Equitana and talking in front of all those people. There was no plan to turn that into clinics. There was no plan to monetize the, the videos. And I was listening to a Tony Robbins podcast a few years ago where he was talking about, he's like, there's seven things you've got to, you know what Tony Robbins like, he's pretty out there. There's seven things you have to do in life that makes life perfect or whatever. And there was, he said, there's the first five things. And once you get through those, then the next one, there's two left. And then the next one, the sixth one, this is the hard one for most people. And that is giving with no thought of anything coming back from that. And if you can do that, you will be given more than you've ever could have imagined. And it's kind of like, that's kind of what's happened here is, um, you know, there was no plan to monetize anything, any of those two givings that going to Equitana and helping people understand things and then putting these videos on YouTube. I was just putting videos on YouTube because I felt there was a, you know, some misunderstandings about horses that people were having that I'd like to help them with. So they're not having as much problems, but there was no plan to monetize that at all. And then, you know, the, that thing after a few years took off to where I was spending you know, I was doing clinics, I was flying around the world doing clinics, I had horses in training, I had a guy working for me, helping those, keeping those going while I was away, had the video thing. And one time I came back from a trip and I'm thinking, when I get back from a trip, I'm at the barn seven days a week, uh, six days a week training horses. And that's making about 10% of my money. Why am I spending 90% of my time making 10% of my money? Tyler wants to go to college, you're going to have to pay for college, you know? And so then I made the decision to not train horses anymore and just focus on the the clinics and the, uh, the videos. And then a few years, I don't know how many years after that, but not many years after that, Robin said, you need, you need help with running this thing that's came. So she quit HR and then, so she's, you know, she came and helped me and here we are. Well, this isn't quite where we are. This is where I think we were. Uh, we um, were at this right. point in the story. Yeah. So. For those of you, again, who are just going to fill in a couple of gaps here, if you're not horsey, Warwick made it sound relatively straightforward to become very, very, very successful in the horse training business. Let me assure you, listeners, it is not. It is possibly, I would say, the hardest skill that you can possibly try to learn. And the reason is, is that most skills, let's say you want to learn a language or an art or something, it's you and your body and brain and your nervous system. When you add a horse, it's a whole other body, brain, and nervous system that has its own ideas, that weighs what a truck weighs, that solves its problems by violently running away, that isn't designed to carry weight on its back, regards you as a predator, because you are, your weight is not designed to sit on a moving barrel. You have these hands, you try to solve things with your hands and grabbing because that's what we do as, as apes. Well, you can't do that on a horse and without upsetting it greatly. If you go into your fight, flight, freeze position in that sort of crouch where you protect your organs and hunch, which of course you want to do on horses because it's often quite scary, particularly with young horses, guess what's going to happen? You're going to fall off and you're going to fall off quite badly because your, your weight will be wrong. So. Just those things alone mean that it's sort of a miracle that the thing can even happen at all. But to take it to the level that Warwick took it is no easy feat at all. So I just want you to know that he's not being falsely modest here. He's just a 
a fairly modest dude. So I know him, but take it from me. This was not an easy road. This was not an easy road at all. All right. So you're, you're, you're there and you're now, you've got this online video library and this is doing well. Robin's left her job. You're basically in media at this point. You're, 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 you may not know it, but you're creating media admittedly in service, admittedly, you know, the content is about what, you know, you're not at this point making content about foreign wars or Netflix, right, not generally. Game of Thrones series or anything, but you're nonetheless, you're producing very effective entry television, even if you don't know it. And you've created a family business out of this. So your, your son is involved, your, your, your wife is involved. Now, now you're going for it again. Why not just stay there? Where did you go? Where have you gone? When I said, you said, this is where we are. I said, this is where we were. I know that you've gone out from this. And this is where I really do suggest that you start to listen a bit more deeply listeners, because everything up to this point has been preamble. Um, this is the, all that, all that, yeah, the, but it's the lead up. To... We need the, we need the context. So, okay. I'll stop, stop talking now. What happens next? So Robin wants to buy another reigning horse and we have this modest budget to buy this reigning horse and she's looking at two different horses. And one is a big old steady Eddie sort of a gilding. And the other one is this little tiny, little, not tiny, but little, very athletic, feely, can do all the hard stuff. And they're both the same price. We're actually going to look at them from the same trainer. They're both the same price, but one's average and one is exceptional, but the exceptional one, the trainer that has him, he, they can't, what we would call in the business, get him shown. Meaning the talent he can show you at home doesn't, you can't com put a complete run together in the show ring. Something always goes wrong. Like, and with this particular horse, he would spook at the judges chairs or something like that. And the guy that trained the horse is a friend of mine. I know he's very, very good at training reigning horses, but as far as problem solving, you know, he's not the best at that. So those sorts of things. And so I'm like, you know, I've been, I've got this online video library. I go around, travel around the world doing clinics and all the horses leave better than they came. I know what I'm talking about. I can fix that horse, buy that horse. And actually the story, we actually bought him from Michael Schumacher's wife, Karina. So the Formula One driver, she, yeah. Karina's really into the reigning and both horses, Karina owned both horses. A friend of mine was training horses for them at the time. So we ended up buying this horse, his name Sherlock, and we get him home and I want to fix this, fix this horse. And some of the, some of the issues he had were easily solvable, but there was one that I wasn't aware of that was a lot more subtle. Sherlock was very obedient, did whatever you want, but he carried this level of tension that would interfere with him in the show ring to where, so in the reigning, you, you get given a, you, you start with a score of 70 and then you, for each movement, you add and subtract from there. It's either, you know, if it's, if it's a good movement, you might get a 70, you know, you might get one point added, or if it's bad, you get one point taken away, you know, and, you know, for a, a there's either seven or eight maneuvers in a running pattern and a really good running score might be like a 74. Okay. But apart from getting scored on each maneuver, there are also penalties incurred, you know, it'd be like in jumping time faults sort of thing, or knocking a rail would be, you know, that sort of thing. So if you jump clear, your time is a certain thing in the, in the jumping, but if you knock a rail, 
it's this much off. You're not two hours as much, that sort of thing. Yeah. And so Sherlock could go in there and mark like, you know, Robin was showing him, he could go in there and earn a 74, but he would have a number of penalties that would bring him back down to a 70. And those penalties were the simplest of things. So in the reigning, a horse needs to be on the correct lead, of course. Again, for the non-horsey people, that means when you're cantering or in the slow gallop, the foreleg needs to be on the inside of the curve. This might sound very esoteric, but it basically it's, it can be the difference between a horse falling over and not. Yeah. So that if you think about skipping, you're going to skip with one leg skips in front of the other one, both of the legs, the front legs and the back legs need to be doing that thing. Like the inside hind leg goes further forward than the outside hind leg and the front leg, same thing. What Sherlock would do, because he had this level of tension, when he was running fast circles in the raining, he would bounce his hind feet together every once in a while. So he's not on the wrong lead. His outside hind leg does not reach further forward than his inside hind leg. He's not on the wrong lead. He would just bounce his hind feet together. Well, that's a one point penalty. That is not on the correct lead. Okay. But that split second, but it's still the same penalty. And so he would do that a lot. And I could not train that out of him. I couldn't. Yeah. do exercises to, to fix that and trying to do things actually made him seem worse. Right. And it brought stress what, and tension. Right. Yeah. And what, what I came to realize about Sherlock, he was just very, very shut down, very, very robotic, shut down in his head. And he, he led me down a rabbit hole of figuring out that I was exactly the same way. Sherlock was me. And how I came to discover that I was at a horse expo in Madison, Wisconsin. And at those horse expos, most times I'm working with a horse in an arena, right? You know, I don't bring a horse. I have problem horses that show up and I help them. But every once in a while, the horse expo will have you do a stand up talk in like a lecture hall. And so I've, and you know, quite, quite often the horse expos have that. So I just have this title that I have that I will spit, you know, they want titles for the sessions three months ahead of time. And I'll just give them this one title and it's called everything I learned in life. I learned from horses and I've done it over the years. And I just talk about life lessons I've learned from horses and each one's a bit different, but by about this time I'd started looking at things quite a bit differently, but I stood up in front of a couple of hundred people and did this talk. And it was, the talk was different than I'd done before. And I was probably a little more vulnerable about things than I had before. And when I got done with that talk, I went back to my booth and I went past Barbara Schulte's booth. So you met Barb at the, the Journey and Podcast Summit last year. Barb's a, a, a question mindset coach. And she said, how'd the talk go? And I said, oh my God, Barb, I'm exhausted. I feel like I've been run over by a truck. She goes, what do you mean? And I said, I was, uh, there's 200 strangers in that room. And I, I told him some stuff. I've probably never even told myself before. I've never admitted to somebody or probably never knew it to myself before. And she goes, oh, well, you know what Brene Brown says, you know, vulnerability is the ultimate badass. And I'm like, Brene who? She says, Brene Brown. So I came home and I looked up this Brene Brown and I got a couple of her audio books. So I was outside on the tractor moving piles of horse manure or whatever with my earphones on listening. And Brene Brown says in there, if you, you, you can't, selectively suppress emotions. If you suppress the low emotions, fear, grief, those sorts of things, you automatically suppress the higher emotion. And I'm like, well, I know it, you know, in my family of origin, 
well, my culture I grew up in, you know, boys don't cry, boys don't show fear. And in my family, you don't show grief. Like I can remember going to a funeral and my parents would go, oh, he's dead. And off you go, you know. And so I knew I had some suppressed emotions on the lower side, but I never thought about the higher side. Like, could I experience more joy or more happiness or, or whatever? And so that kind of led me down a rabbit hole of therapy and looking at, looking at for different ways of resolving that. And, you know, it's, that's been four years. That was 2017. So maybe that's been about six years Before now. Before we and join you down the rabbit hole, why on that particular occasion were you vulnerable talking to those people where you hadn't been before? What changed? What was different? Well, you know, Sherlock had got me, Sherlock had kind of got me to where I thought I knew what I was doing and I know what to do and I know how to solve things. And when I couldn't solve things the way I was looking at solving them, the way I had been solving all sorts of things in the past, it kind of, that's a little confronting to where you're like, you know, it's kind of like your view of the world changes. Like I thought it was this way. I thought there were absolutes and this works. And when that doesn't work, it kind of gets you looking outside that. So I started, what I had started doing was reading articles online by people that I would have, horse people, that in the past I would have considered crazy cat ladies. You know, like, and a lot of it had to do with relationship type work with horses and not technique type stuff with horses. And, I, and then I'd started, I'd started fiddling with horses at clinics actually. And I, I had a, I had a horse at a clinic in Texas around this time. And it was before this, it was before this horse expo where I gave this talk. And this, this was the thing that probably changed everything for me. So this horse came to a clinic. He's a Mustang. He's been out of the wild for nine, for six years. He's nine years old, been out of the wild since he was three. They've been riding him and, you know, he does everything well, except every once in a while, he will bolt out of nowhere and they don't know what causes it. Okay. And the trainer of the horse was at the clinic as well as the owner. You would have met them probably at the podcast summit last year because they were there, but the owner's name's Hannah and, and this horse so I said to the, I said to the trainer, so what triggers the bolting? Cause you don't solve bolting issues. Bolting's a, bolting is a, is a symptom of something else. If you can figure out what the something else is, the bolting will go away. And I said, what causes it? Like, what's the trigger? She goes, the, and the trainer said, I don't know what the trigger is. Like it could be something that yesterday he was fine with. And you know, the time before it could have been something he was fine with the day before that. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. I'm not sure I can help you because. I've got to know what the trigger is in order to solve the problem. The problem is not the problem, you know? And so Hannah was on the ground doing some groundwork with him and she was asking him to disengage. So she's going to walk down his side and just ask him to step over behind, maybe cross his hind legs. And she said to me, Hey, he keeps blocking me out. Like when I go to walk down beside him, I mean, like she's in front of him facing him and she wants to walk down his left side and ask him to move his hind end over, but he turns his head and blocks her. And in the past, I probably would have taken that as you know, not necessarily disobedience, but what I would have done in the past, I just reached my hand under his jaw and moved his head back to the middle and walked down the side. I said, let me try. And I went over and I went to walk down his side and he turned his head and blocked me with his head to not get in his side. Instead of saying, excuse me, I'm going down your side. I stepped back to my original position and said, I saw your concern. 
is basically what I was communicating from that. Like, I'm not sure why you did that, but I saw you did that. And I, you're telling me you don't want me to go down there. And I said to Hannah, you'd probably just overdone the disengaging. Like if you drill stuff like this, they probably just get sick of it. And I think that's what he's doing. Let me try again. So I tried again. He turned his head. I stepped back and said, I see your concern. I did it. I did that for about 10 minutes. And after about 10 minutes of not correcting him, not training him, but just telling him I'm listening, I go to walk down that side and he lets me. Doesn't turn his head in the slightest bit. I'm like, okay, he's been ridden for six years. So obviously I could touch him. And so I reached my hand up to put on his wither, just to put my hand there. But I'm watching his head and his eye and his ear and his nose and his muzzle. And as I go to touch him, his head raises just about half an inch. He just stiffens up very slightly. So I took my hand away and I waited till he showed me some sign of being less concerned, like his head lowers or whatever. And I tried it again. I did that for about 10 minutes. And so I spent 10 minutes trying to walk down the side of him, which he finally lets me. And then after about 10 minutes of this, doing this with my hand, I can now put my hand on him and there's no change in him. Like he's not concerned at all. And I said to Hannah, so now what I'm going to do, I'm asking to disengage. And I ask him to disengage and he does it perfectly. And I said to Hannah, okay, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to go back to the front of him and come down this side. And I bet he blocks me again. He's going to tell me, I'm sick of your disengaging. You know, I walk back to the front. I go to walk down the side. He lets me, I ask him to disengage. So I go back to the front. I walk down the side and disengage. And I did it over and over and over. And I couldn't get him to say no. And I said to Hannah, I have no idea why he was saying no before, because he's fine with it now. So I handed the lead rope back to her and I, she said, what do you want me to do? And I said, just hang on, just hang there with him, you know, let him think about that for a minute. So I go and help somebody else. And about 10 minutes later, there is a collective gasp from everybody at the clinic. Like, <laughs> and I turn and I look and this little Mustang, his name's Cody, has buckled at the knees, dropped through his belly and just started snoring little dust clouds in the dirt. Like his head's vertical and he's, and then all of a sudden he has a roll, gets up, has a big old shake and then just buckles at the knees and oh goes back down and falls immediately asleep. And I said to Hannah, has that ever happened before? Is that normal? And she said, I've had him for six years and I've seen him lay down once. And so right then I knew something had happened. I wasn't sure what happened or why it happened, but I knew something had happened. And he slept to lunchtime. So, you know, at the time when I do a clinic, I was having a morning group, an afternoon group, and they were in the morning group. And he slept for an about an hour and a half with the loudspeaker going and other horses riding around. And she had to actually wake him up. Again, with the people, that's just, that doesn't happen. Horses it doesn't happen. They don't sleep like that. No, they little sleep. Um, so she put him away. And the next day for the clinic, she brings him in first thing in the morning, you know, eight o'clock in the morning. She said, what do you want me to do? And I said, just hang with him and see what he does. So she stands there about 20 minutes later, boom. And he goes, passes out, flat on his side, sleeps for four hours to lunchtime. Good like Lord. doesn't get up. He's unconscious. And again, for listeners, horses, A, the reason they don't lie down for that long is because they're vulnerable to predators in the wild when they do that. And B, usually their internal organs can compress on, it, on themselves when a horse is lying like that for an awful long time. So horses just generally will not do that. So this is, let's just say this is highly unusual behavior. Okay. Highly unusual behavior for any horse, but this horse, she hasn't seen him lay down in six years. She said, actually, I seen him lay down once, but when I appeared on the horizon, he jumped up. Yeah. And so I knew something had happened and I came home from that clinic and I looked up sleeping habits of horses online. You know, you, I know horses can sleep standing up and I know horses will sleep laying down. But what I didn't know was when horses sleep standing up, it is a very light sleep. It's dozing. They're just dozing in an order. 
so what they need to do in order to get enough REM sleep, they need to lay prone. They need to lay flat. And in order to lay flat, they need to feel safe. And if a horse does not get enough REM sleep, now we can't ask the horse what they do, but with humans, if they don't get enough REM sleep, they're either irritable or anxious. So anyway, she went home from the clinic. He slept for about a week. Like he spent more time sleeping than anything else for about a week. That was six or seven years ago. He has not bolted once since. Yeah, I mean, it makes one think, you know, lack of sleep in a human, if it's that chronic, leads to psychosis. Uh, well, this horse, yeah. what, he, he just wasn't relaxed. So his nervous system was on high alert. And so it didn't, it wasn't about what set him off. It was the fact he, you know, his nervous system was stuck in flight mode, basically. Yeah. But anyway, the big thing about that was I didn't do anything except listen. I only thing I did with him was communicated the fact I was listening. And when he said, you notice that? You notice that little thing? You notice my head raised half an inch? If you notice that, then you could probably notice a saber-toothed tiger on the horizon, which means you are one of my herd mates. Like I trust your judgment, which means I could lay down around you. And it was the biggest change I've ever seen with a horse that I didn't do anything with. Even it's probably as big a change as I've ever seen in a horse. And I didn't do anything. And up to that point in time, I'd all been about training horses, training, learning better training techniques, learning more about more empathetic training techniques, but they were all training techniques. And that was got me thinking about, well, what can we get done by listening? Quick question before we go there. Was this post-Sherlock or pre-Sherlock? This was after I got Sherlock. And I, I, what I'd done with Sherlock was I had stepped away from trying to make Sherlock any different because I didn't have the answer. And I'm not just going to try and put a square peg in a round hole. Like uh, Sherlock so is the bouncing of the two hind legs. You, you didn't fix it. No, I didn't yeah. fix it and I couldn't fix it. And it made him more concerned when I was trying to fix it. So I Got said it. to Robin, okay, you can, you can go to a show and you can mark a 74, but lose four penalty points and still be a 70. And the person who won it was a 71 and you can be second. So I'm not going to do anything to it because he could do all the hard stuff. Like he could, the spinning and the stopping and all the hard stuff he could do. That was not a problem for him. So she could still compete and be quite good without that. But I, I wasn't going to try to fix it because I didn't know how to fix it. But I got looking at other things and, and some of the articles I'd read and things like that is what made me experiment the way I did with this horse at this clinic. And that basically changed everything about how I approach horses is nowadays my whole approach is about telling them how much I'm listening first. And so, you, you know, you create connections through attunement and the training comes on top of it. And it's amazing how easy horses are to train when when you get all that stuff done. But that, that was the horse that really changed things for me. And it was after that, that clinic that I did the talk at the horse expo. And I told that story and I probably told a few other stories about some things. I'm not sure what they were, but so that's what led me down the rabbit hole of starting to look into my own stuff. And, you know, after about a year of that, I was thinking, yeah, I'm getting somewhere, but here seven years later, just recently, I'm like, oh no, I'm just, I've just got to another level right now to where, and I'm not talking about going up a level, I'm going down a level. Like, oh no, this is deeper than I thought it was. <laughs> there's, there's more to this self-reflection stuff than I thought there was. You know, for, again, listeners, I, two years ago, found myself sitting in a sweat lodge with Warwick and a great friend of ours, Joel Dunlap, who works in amazing therapeutic riding in, in California with a 
medicine man from the Native American church. And that was the first time I, I was myself struggling. I was in a major funk and the medicine man said to me, I think you need to take some medicine. And by that he meant peyote. And I'm not a recreational drug user. There had been a chapter of that way back 500 years ago in my past, back in the Pleistocene when Mastodon still bellowed to Mastodon across the primeval swamp. But, you know, I don't, I don't like altered state of consciousness that are induced that much because like everybody, I'm a bit of a control freak. So I was, I had all sorts of worries and then I gave up and I surrendered and it turned out to be life-changing and helped me an awful lot and has to this day. Warwick was in that sweat lodge with me. So you've gone Warwick from beginning to listen to horses, now beginning to look a little bit at yourself. Where does it go? And why? Can you reframe that question? Like what, what's your actual question? Okay. Where does it go next? Yeah. You, you, you've started listening to horses and now listening to horses in this particular way has led you to some degree to listen to yourself. You have this fight, flight, freeze. You have this shutdown. You're beginning to realize this. You're beginning to see, you know, it's a terrible cliche to say the horse is your mirror and it's, it's a somewhat abused cliche, but it's not that like all cliches, there's truth in it. So you're seeing this and now you're feeling for some reason you can't ignore your own shutdownness anymore. Why? A lot of people would, a lot of people would just keep going. I think because I was aware, aware of it really. Yeah. I, I just became aware of it and I was, what, what I, you know, what I, you said some people will ignore their own shutdown. What I had come to realize is that the way I had been showing up in the world, there was a different way to be, you know, I thought my lot in life was my lot in life, like how I, and you know what, when you, when you spend a lot of time shut down, you know, in a minor state of depression, you don't know you're depressed Yeah, because it's your normal. You don't know there's any other way to live. And right. And you're basically I, I, functional I, on a superficial level. Yeah, right. So yeah. yeah. And, but that's all, you know, if that's all, you know, that's, that's normal. And I spent a year doing a type of therapy called dialectical behavior therapy, which was, I think originally designed for, um, created for highly suicidal adults, but they found it's good for people with any emotional regulation or dysregulation, you know, emotional regulation issues or dysregulation. But I spent a year doing both individual and group therapy. Why that out of interest with all I the asked, I asked someone I knew through horses, who's a therapist, you know, what sort of therapy I should try. And, and she suggested that one, but I did individual and group therapy. And the reason I did the group therapy is because when I first went and saw the therapist, I told her what I wanted to work on. She goes, oh yeah, this would be pretty easy. And after about three months of not, and she said, we have group therapy, but you won't need to do that. And after about three months of doing the individual therapy, not getting anywhere, she goes, you really should start doing the group therapy. So I did the group and the individual therapy for better part of a year and didn't get anywhere. What happened and, in those sessions? Why did you not get anywhere? And what's the nuts and bolts of that type of therapy? The nuts and bolts of that type of therapy, it's about developing skills to use when you have emotional dysregulation. But what I found after 12 months and it didn't work was 
you actually have to have some emotions for that particular method to work upon you when you have no emotions like we'd have homework every week from the, the group therapy you know you're going to do this homework and then when you have and, and then you're going to use that skill it's the same as training horses you, you know you don't tr use a skill before you teach the skill you teach the skill separately and then when you have a situation to use it you use the skill um and so our homework was to use the skill after we'd worked on it during the week and we'd come back like do your homework i'm like no why not well, I didn't have any emotional regulation issues, did I? So that didn't work. So, and this is where you just mentioned peyote a minute ago. So after that, I was January after that. I was January probably 2009, maybe. I am driving around in Australia doing some clinics. I'm listening to an audio book by Tim Ferriss, I think it might be might be Tim Ferriss or Dave Asprey. Now it was Dave Asprey, the Bulletproof Coffee Guy. I don't know if you know who Dave Asprey is. No, I, I, I should. So Dave, Dave Asprey was a... Asprey. 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 Asprey, yeah. Dave Asprey was a, some sort of a Silicon Valley wonder guy and, and had some sort of a startup company, which he sold in his early, maybe 30s for a lot of money. And he had all this money and like, what am I going to do with it? Well, he had been morbidly obese all his life and has tried every diet, every exercise plan, ever couldn't lose weight. And, you know, like didn't cut down on, on one bag of chips a day. Like he did the work, did like all sorts of workouts, weightlifting. Anyway, he had a lot of sports injuries from weightlifting. And he wrote this book called Game Changers. And he has, a, he has a podcast. So on his podcast, he interviewed like 300 people on his podcast. And they're all game changers in their walk of life. And at the end of the podcast, he said, so what three things would you, what three bits of advice would you give people? And then he took all three bits of advice from 300 people and figured out what are the common denominators. And so he wrote a book about it called Game Changes. And one of the first chapter was on a meditation practice. Everybody had a meditation practice. And as you go through the chapters, it goes down to things. Well, one of the things he was talking about in one of these chapters was, um, he said he'd been to a doctor in Silicon Valley who will draw fat out of you and spin off your stem cells and inject them into sports injuries. Like, so he said, I've had every joint in my body injected with my own stem cells. And he said, I feel like, a, you know, I've had my shoulders were jacked up from weightlifting and my knees were done from weightlifting. And he says, I feel great. Feel like I'm 18 again. He said, but there's something else this guy will do is he will pull fat out of you, spin off your stem cells and inject them into your vagus nerve and give you a complete emotional reset back to factory settings before whatever happened, happened. And I'm like, I mean, I've been driving an hour each way twice a week to go to therapy for a year and I can just get an injection. And so I came home from that trip and I looked the guy up and he's just, you know, he's 45 minutes from here. Uh, I made an appointment to have a phone consult with him. We talked for an hour on the phone and I told him what I wanted to do. And he said, so we call that a stellate ganglion block, but we're not going to do that with you because based on what you've told me, I'm going to do something else with you. I'm like, okay. So we make an appointment for me to go in. Uh, Robin and I go in we spend probably an hour in his office chatting with him. Fascinating guy. Uh, then they take me into a room and hook me up to an IV of something called NAD. You know what what's NAD the name? Is? What's the name of this guy who's doing the stem cell? Uh, uh, his name is... I'll think of it in a minute. I'll look at okay. it. Please, I'll look I, think, I think we'd all like to know. 
it's in Dave Asprey's book about halfway through the book, but I'll think of his name here in a minute. And so they hooked me up to an IV of something called NAD. So NAD is a, if you don't know what NAD is, NAD is a cofactor. If you don't know what a cofactor is, neither do I, but it's something you were born with a certain amount of it. And as you age, it depletes, drinking depletes it quicker. And I used to drink three beers a day. And it has something to do with your gut, brain, neural pathway. Okay. And this NAD is supposed to help that. But so I do four and a half hours of this NAD. And so they, it hurts when it goes in. What's interesting, like they put it in your arm, but it doesn't hurt where it goes in. It hurts in that part of your body that needs it. Interesting. And they get the drip. Which to in your case was where? Where did it hurt? Gut. In my gut, and I had a, I had a messed up shoulder over here, and that shoulder hurt too. It was so fascinating. But they turn the drip to where you're about a five on the pain scale, five out of ten, on the pain scale. Any less than that's going to take too long. Any more than that's too much. But I felt physically sick to my stomach while this stuff was going in. Yeah. Uh, anyway, they get done with that after about four and a half hours. Then he brings in uh, Zhigong Energy healer in the room and she sits down and they hook me up to an infusion of ketamine and I have my first psychedelic experience. Why, why that? Why, why a Qigong person to give you ketamine and why ketamine and why uh, ketamine she didn't give me the... after this NAD? What, what uh, was the logic to, process? There? You would have to ask the doctor, but it had to do with the, the being shut down stuff. That's his protocol for that. And the Qigong energy healer didn't give me the IV. She just sat with me in case I started to freak out. Okay. Um, so what happened to you, you, you take the ketamine and take the ketamine and you just lay back in this recliner and it's like, it's a psychedelic, you know, it's a, it's a kaleidoscopic vision, the brightest colors you've ever seen. It's like being in a kaleidoscopic roller coaster is what it was like. And I'd never done anything to do with psychedelics. So I had no idea what I was in for. Were you distressed? Were you? No, dead? no, it was a very, like they had this big smile on my face and it was like a very pleasant experience. Anyway, so then I get done with that. It lasts for about 20 minutes. Robin's sitting over to the side of me, watching me. And she said, I just lay there in the chair. And they said, okay, so your, your, your emotions should go offline for about eight hours. And then eight hours from now, it'll all kick in. And that was about four o'clock one afternoon. So we go home, wake up the next morning, which is, you know, that's probably 14, 15 hours after I'd had it. No different. And I said to Robin, oh, well. That was a bust that didn't work. And I had to fly to Washington state that afternoon to do, present at a horse expo on that weekend. And I was in San Jose airport sitting down at three o'clock in the afternoon. So almost 24 hours after I'd had this ketamine infusion, and all of a sudden I got this feeling in my abdomen. So think about this. The only emotions I'd experienced pretty much in my life that I can remember up to that point was heartbreak and being in love in my chest, right. and fear, dread in the pit of my stomach. Those are the only... Because uh, that was what I was going to ask you. It's like, it's not that you didn't have emotions. You were obviously in love with Robin. You pursued her, you chased her, you, 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 to some degree went back to America for her. So, I mean, it's not that you were emotionless. It's that didn't have a you were emotion poor or so. Is that what poor, you said? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, heartbreak and being in love in my chest and fear and dread in the pit of my stomach. That's about it. Okay. That's about the extent of it. And so I'm sitting. You mean there's more? There. <laughs> you mean there's more? sitting in San Jose airport the next afternoon. And I get this feeling like there's an alien inside me and this energy and it moves around and it's in my, 
it's in my solar plexus, which I've never felt anything in there before. And it moves and it goes up and down. And as I'm walking around the airport, when I look at people, it changes and it goes here and it goes there. I'm like, what is this thing? And the strangest thing, I went to that horse expo and I had a booth at the horse expo. I did some demos, you know, I had a booth at the horse expo and that particular county in Washington, everybody takes their dogs everywhere, including the horse expo. So it was Great. When I go away to a horse expo, I miss our dogs and I don't see dogs, but there were dogs everywhere. People leading dogs around. So I had to say hi to all the dogs. But there was a lady there had a cat on a leash, on a harness, and she's walking around with this cat. And I was sitting at my booth in a chair behind the desk. The lady walks past with a cat and this cat makes a beeline for me, jumps up on the desk and jumps in my lap and sucks up against my abdomen and stays there for half an hour while I talk to the lady and the cat is just sucked up against me. And she said, the cat's never done this before. That cat sucked up against my abdomen. And in the end, you know, she talks for half an hour and she's got to leave. She's actually got to pick the cat up by the scruff of the neck like a kitten to get the cat off my lap. But that was the first time I'd felt emotions, felt energy in my, in my body. And what were the emotions, would you say, that you were feeling? Well, that's a good question. If you've never had, see, how do you know what an emotion is? You have something happen, you have an energy inside you, and it's connected to, oh, right there, I was happy, or right there, I was sad, or right. I've never had those. So what they meant to me, I had no idea. But were they, were, did you feel they were positive or negative? Positive. Okay. They were positive. Yes, they were positive. They, weren't, they definitely weren't negative. But, you know, if you gave me the whole scale of emotions and the, the positive emotions and said, which one of these was, I'm like, I got no idea. It was just. Right, but you weren't suddenly beset with negative emotions, for example. No, no, no. It was, it was, no, it was I, in the I, direction I think, of joy. No, I think I had a pretty good handle on the negative emotions. All right. Uh, but it was, for me, it was fascinating. Like, I've never felt this in my entire life. And I don't remember that class at school where the teacher said, okay, if you're a fully functioning human being, you will have these energies in your abdomen. They'll move up and down and here and there. And sometimes they'll feel good and sometimes they'll feel bad. Do you remember that class at school? No, because we don't have it. So, no, English schools when I was a boy, no. So, you know what I mean? I remember that, but yeah. I didn't know. I always thought emotions were thoughts. Like, if, you know, if someone said, Oh, someone ran over my dog, I'd go, Oh, I feel sorry for you. I didn't feel sorry for them. I thought sorry for them. In my head, it's like, Oh, yes, that would not be good. But I didn't get a visceral sensation from someone saying, a truck ran over my dog. I didn't, I didn't feel it, even though I would say, oh, I feel sorry for you. I didn't right. feel. And so it was fascinating for me to be, I was 50 years old at the time. Fascinating for me to, at 50 years old, have sensations in my body I've never had, or at least I haven't had since before memory. You know, my earliest memories are about five. So before that, but things were pretty shut and, and stuck. And what was interesting was it was a psychedelic that got it working, which gave me an interest in psychedelics. I, you know, I'd never. Was it the psychedelic or was it the NAD? Do you think? Uh, or was it a combo of the two? It was the psychedelic. Combo of the two, but uh, yeah. And so my next, so after that, I'm like, I'd heard a lot about this ayahuasca thing. And so the next thing I did was went to Florida to a, a three day ayahuasca ceremony. And that kept away a bit. And I've, you know, I've tried a number of different psychedelics since then. Let's, all let's, in, let's go all to the ayahuasca. Therapy. What happens to you with the ayahuasca? And again, explain, we, we tend to assume that people know what ayahuasca is. Let's assume that people don't know what ayahuasca is. What is it? 
And then ayahuasca is a, a psychedelic from, I think it's from the Amazon basin originally. And it's yeah. made from, it's made from two plants that grow in the Amazon. You think about there's a million different species of plants in the Amazon and they take a vine and they take a leaf from a different plant. So there's a, one's a vine, one's a leaf. They put them in a pot, boil them together and they take the vine, I think, and they beat it with a stick until it kind of goes into a mashy, pulpy sort of thing. And the most powerful psychedelic in the world is something called DMT, dimethyltryptamine. And yeah. the combination of these two things, so one of the plants has the dimethyltryptamine in it, but you, your body can't access it until it's unlocked by this other plant. But what's interesting is, so the shamans in the Amazon would use this stuff to, to journey and things like that. But what's interesting is if they you ask the, the shamans in the Amazon, how did you guys figure out how to, which two plants out of a million plant species to put together. How did you figure out how to do that? And they said, oh, that's easy. The plants told us. Yeah. And so you drink it. It's a black, dark brown, thick liquid that has the most bitter taste. It's foul. Um, you, you drink, you drink this liquid and then probably an hour or so later, you, you sit somewhere or lay somewhere and about an hour or so later, you start having this inward journey and really what the ayahuasca, at least for me, what it did was it peels you open to where you look into all the dark places that, and this was for me at least, all the dark places and all the shame and the self-loathing and stuff that you have that you've never, that you've avoided looking at. For me, it took me there. And I think all the psychedelics have, have taken me there. With the, with um, the exception of the ketamine. Yeah, the ketamine, there was none of that. There was, there was none of that. All it was, was just this kaleidoscopic, but there was no self-judgment. There was no, yeah, there was none of that in that. But anyway, so the ayahuasca, it was three separate ceremonies, one Friday night, one Saturday lunchtime, one Saturday night. And uh, yeah, that was part of the start of my healing journey, I think. Now, so when it ketamine. took you, when it took you down into self-loathing and shame, did that bring, why did that not bring you into despair? Why did that not make you want to harm yourself in some way, punish yourself? Well, what's the, way? What, what, how was that positive? Well, what the ayahuasca does. So we, when you even before you take the ayahuasca, they give you a small waste paper bin, plastic waste paper bin to hold. And they said, don't go anywhere without that. And what happens with the ayahuasca is stuck emotions come up in your like in your abdomen and you they, they come up as emotions and then you purge them. So you, there's a lot of puking with ayahuasca and, you know, so you'd be, you know, fear, self-loathing, shame, whatever it is will come up in your mind and then you feel it in your body and then you purge that and it, and it, yeah, it, it is working through stuff, you know. Uh, and when you purge it, does that feel cathartic? Yes. Is there a joy? Yes. Yes. It's like, I finally got that thing out of me, but then the next okay. one comes. All up. right. Okay. You know, some people, some people with ayahuasca just have, they have experiences to where they have interactions with other beings, other entities, the universe, the divine, whatever. I have not ever had that. All mine has been, all of my experiences have been like fear, shame, loathing, all that sort of stuff. You've gone back and done ayahuasca since this. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. But I have done some other plant medicines. 
And those plant, those same plant, med the other plant medicines have also taken you to, to shame. Yeah, dark, dark places, but, but worked through them. Last year I did a, they call it a God dose of mushrooms, of psilocybin mushrooms, like five and a half grams, which is a big dose. And yeah, there was a lot of similar stuff. And what I, what being emotionally stuck, I've always thought that what was going to happen with any of these plants medicines with me is I was going to have this big cathartic release where I was going to cry and bawl my eyes out, like really sobbing. And that has not happened. And I keep kind of judging these experiences because they haven't happened, but with the, the psilocybin was last year. So that I had, I had two guides with me, a husband and wife, you know, so this was this, you know, with psychedelics, they talk about set and setting. And, and this was, you know, we had the intention of healing. This is what we're going to do. I was actually on a camp stretcher in the middle of a pasture under a tree and we had a, play, a playlist of music. I took the medicine as a tea and then it started to hit, come in, I lay on the thing and the, the lady, she sat beside me. So you'd ever done mushrooms and you take the God's yeah. dose? Yeah. Okay. And she talks me through a, like a, a like a, a breath work. Cause when the start of the, the psilocybin yeah. kicks in, it can be kind of scary. And so she kind of had led me through this breath work till I got through the, well, supposedly through the scary part, but scarier than ayahuasca. I'd say different. I wouldn't, I think fear is fear. No, not more scary, not less scary. Okay. Probably actually probably more scary because the ayahuasca, the scary part was just the looking at my own fear and loathing and all that sort of stuff. Whereas this was actually a scary situation. So she sat there with me and if I needed her to hold my hand, she'd hold my hand. At one point in time, I had a, like I had a blanket over me and I had her hopping beside me and like spoon me. And, you know, I felt I needed that feminine energy there, but I kept telling her, it's not happening. It's not coming. It's not coming. I'm not, I'm, I, I feel like I should be crying and I'm not. But anyway, so the next day I was somewhere and I took a breath took a big deep breath in and you know all my life I've been able to take a certain depth of breath in and that's my breath you know well this the next day I took this breath in and in and in and in it's like something had let go in my abdomen that had been clamping that had that not allowed me to take a full breath ever in my entire life and I breathed in and in and in and in and in and it was almost twice as big a breath as I've ever taken. And when I let that breath out, I completely relaxed. Like, and that relaxed feeling was like, I don't know if I've ever felt that relaxed in my entire life. So something during that journey let go somewhere in there. This was how long ago? In last July, I think. Okay. When we were together in the sweat lodge with the peyote, did you feel shame and self-loathing then no i didn't journey at all there i didn't it didn't seem to me that you did no i didn't i didn't journey at all then i was you know i was probably a bit too in my head there you know like we i've never done a sweat lodge before i have no idea how they how they work and you know and the the shaman guy says okay so you you know we're going to sing a song you know what's your song and you sang a song and joel sang a song and i'm like i'm sitting there thinking uh, what should I say? No, no, I don't have a song and I can't sing. I say, I suck at singing anyway. You know, but what if I say, I could sing a song, but no, but it might not be the right song and they might think I'm stupid. You know, all of that stuff. So I was really in my head in that, that, in that whole experience. 
interesting because for me, what happened there was first, it felt like a small little infrared tracking device, like you'd get in a PowerPoint going through my body uh, and it stopped at every point where there was physical pain mm. or injuries and stiffnesses and that sort of thing. And would just kind of go beep, 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 beep. And then that pain would go and then it would move on. And when it had gone through my obvious spots, mostly on my right side, it went up into my brain and it went to every area of my brain that I was feeling difficulty and blockage. And we go beep, 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 gone, and then we move on. And I remember thinking, well, this is, this is wonderful, but it won't last. It totally lasted. So it's interesting, the different experiences. I have not done DMT, except possibly the natural DMT that gets produced in the human brain. Those of you who don't know, you don't have to take a plant, although it's very difficult to induce enough DMT in your brain to have those religious experiences, what people would call them, but your pineal gland, which produces your melatonin, the melatonin can, under certain conditions, if it gets enough squeezing with cerebral spinal fluid, transduce energy can transduce into the, the crystals that are inside the pineal gland, little salt crystals, and they will throw off a, a, a high electric charge that will change the melatonin into DMT. And then that transduction of energy can make people see things or hear things or whatever. And some people say, oh, well, that's not real then. It's just the DMT. Or one could say, ah, oh, is the DMT allowing you to see and hear what is coming in? The answer is, we don't know, but that seems to be a process with what well, we, we know it's a process within the human body. What's interesting to me is that when you've gone down this road with DMT, which for those who haven't, it's extreme. Without a doubt, it's extreme. And despite the fact that it's taken you to some dark places, why do you think that it hasn't taken you to the point of despair? Why has it not taken you to bad trip psychosis, that sort of thing? That's a great question. I, I, I don't, I don't know that. I have no idea about that, but I do want to, I did want to talk about DMT. You were talking about it a minute ago. Have you ever read a book called DMT, the spirit molecule? I have not. By a doctor. I will now. By Rick who? Straussman. Rick, Rick Straussman. Straussman. And he's a, you know, a PhD doctor dude. And so back in the eighties, he, eighties and nineties, he got government approval to do high dose experiments on people with DMT. Okay. And so, and that was a bit of, a bit of a circle jerk to where the DEA would give approval if the FDA gave approval, the FDA would only give approval if he could find someone who could synthesize human quality DMT, but he couldn't find anybody who would human, who synthesize human quality DMT until he got approval from the FDA. And it was this big old circle jerk. But anyway, he ends up getting it and he does all these experiments with people. And, you know, it was like a double blind study. So sometimes you got a placebo dose, sometimes you got a low dose and sometimes you got a high dose. And what was interesting was the experiences of pretty much everybody who had the high dose were all very much the same reported experience that people have when they say they're abducted by aliens. And it's funny, most alien abductions happen about 
two or three o'clock in the morning, usually to people who have been under a lot of stress. And apparently your pineal gland is most active at about two or three o'clock in the morning. And stress does cause more of that. And the end of the book, he gets to the point to where he says, you know, you can give someone an anti-narcotic so they can't experience any feelings, anything from a narcotic, or you can give someone an anti-psychedelic. And if you give someone an anti-psychedelic, so what he's saying is we have a certain amount of DMT in our bodies at all times. Right. If you give someone an anti-psychedelic, that means that the DMT that is in your body at the moment, you it's not affecting you. You give someone an anti-psychedelic, they go immediately into severe depression. The world is just blah. Okay. So that, that's no DMT. Then the world that we currently live in and we can see is the amount of DMT our brain puts out. Okay. But then, and, and think about if you had an FM radio in the room right there with you, you could turn it on and it could pick up those radio waves that are going between you and me that you can't see, but they're there. Right. There's all sorts of music playing, isn't there? So then, so at the end of the book, he said, and so what happens is like, if you give someone the anti-psychedelic, they have, they're depressed. There is no, there's nothing coming in from the outside world. What we are currently having right now is the amount of DMT in our brain, which allows us to view this level of the world. If you have huge amounts of DMT in you, you get to, you get the ability to be aware of other stuff that's going on here right now that you can't detect with the amount of DMT we have in our bodies. Basically, yeah, like radio waves. Like there's all these radio, there's all this stuff going on. Unless you've got an FM receiver or a TV with rabbit ears or whatever, you can't pick it up. But it doesn't mean it's not there. Yeah, no, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. I mean, um, we know there's more colors on the light spectrum. We know that infrared exists. We know that blue light exists. And we know that there are others. And we've created devices that can pick them up, but there are only some of them. We know that elephants communicate long distance with frequencies so low that we can't hear them, but we have created devices that can detect it. We know that, or we suspect that the other dimensions are microscopic and could be so small that they're indetectable. We know now that there are things, other types of matter like neutrinos that are passing through our body, so a trillion neutrinos are passing through our bodies and through the house at any moment that part of the, what they call the weak force in physics. There's the strong force that binds things together, protons and electrons and that sort of thing. And then there's the weak force that allows things to move fluidly. We don't quite yet understand the dance between them, but we know that there are these things exist, but we can't see neutrinos. We just now know that they're there through the physics of the last 20 years and that sort of thing. So yes, without a doubt, um, we are aware of so much more and it's interesting. Those, those. We're aware of so much more when we can become aware of it. What's interesting to me is, as you know, and some of the listeners might know, I lived with hunting and gathering tribes in the Kalahari of Southern Africa, Bushmen, Sun Bushmen, and was at and the recipient of, you know, many healings and then subsequently with my autistic son and so on and so on. And what's interesting about when those cultures, when they're going into an altered state of consciousness. It's not that it's not an amazing thing and it's not that they don't regard it as an amazing thing. And it's not that they don't regard the frankly inexplicable healings that happen and they do happen. People get sick and get better from really quite extreme things. 
and have done for hundreds of thousands of years using these techniques. Ayahuasca would also be one. But for them, they are also part of the ordinary. Or let's say the ordinary is extraordinary and the extraordinary is ordinary. And one of the things which I think all of us who've ever gone down to those areas notices pretty much right away is that unless some bastards are coming in there and stealing your land and raping your women and cutting down your forest, life is good. And it's not just good because you have enough resources. It's good because there's a certain level of joy in this original human lifestyle, which seems completely taken up with viewing the world in this way and seeing it through the DMT lens. We, of course, post-agriculture shut all that down because it gets in the way. If I want to be the patriarch of the church and I want people to pay taxes to me and I want people to go and fight my battles and my wars, or I want to be king, or I want to be the Duke of, you know, Lord Puff Buttock over there. And I want to go to war with, you know, Lord Big Nose over there. And I got to persuade my serfs to go fight for me who are already effectively enslaved and so on. I've got to reduce them to a sense of depression where their only outlet for passion is violence. And this, of course, is how we've run our societies. And I think when we go back to horse training, to some degree, that's what we all grew up with. I mean, we, you know, we, 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 in fact, we inherited our horse training from the military and we went through school systems that were inherited from the military and so on. So it's very interesting. Is it, you know, the God gene or the God molecule, as you said, is it, is it a joy molecule? Is, 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 is the emotion that you were not feeling joy? Well, I think it was all the higher emotions, but I just want to talk a bit more about that book, Dean to the Spirit Molecule. So the pineal gland is the only part of the brain. So it's, it's the, sits above the roof of the mouth. It's the only part of the brain that's not made up of brain tissue. But, and it forms on day 49. Okay. The pineal gland forms on day 49. And apparently that's the day whether it says you're going to be a boy or a girl. Your chromosomes do your things. Okay. Got that. Now I'm going to jump ship on DMT, the spirit molecule, and go to the way the Buddhists look at things. So you know what the bardo is? No. So in the Buddhist tradition, the bardo is the 49 days that you spend without, uh, as a soul, without a body before you come back again. Okay. Okay. So in which die, Buddhist tradition? In, in Tibetan? No or? idea. Okay. No idea. I've just read this. I'm no scholar on this stuff. Sounds too bad. This 49 day thing. Okay. 49 days after that fetus is conceived, it decides if it's going to become a boy or a girl. The pineal gland starts developing then. And the Buddhists say that 49 days after you die, you, you, your soul lives in the bardo, which is this place without a soul, without a human form without a physical form. And then on day 49, you get given your next physical form. So, you know, a little bit of something to think about. Something else about DMT. Have you ever read a book called The Cosmic Serpent? No, I'm writing these down. And at the end, so I the Cosmic Serpent. Tell us about all these books in order. This anthropologist guy goes to Peru to study the tribes there. And while he's there, they end up talking to him to doing uh, ayahuasca. Is this Wade so Davis? I, 
sounds familiar. Anyway, keep keep going. Uh, uh, yeah, we can look it up as we talk. No. All right. Book by Jeremy Narby is who the book Jeremy is Narby, Cosmic Servant. Because The Serpent and the Rainbow by uh, ah, okay. is worth is worth a look at. It. Okay, but go on. Jeremy so Narby. Yes. So the Cosmic, Cosmic Serpent, and and so he he has this ayahuasca experience, and he sees snakes, intertwined snakes in this vision that he has, very colorful intertwined snakes. And then he sees these ladders as well. And then he, you know, over the years, he starts researching, he gets this idea about altered states of consciousness, whether it was from ayahuasca or meditation or chanting or whatever it is. But in all of the, the shamanic traditions, there is always these intertwined snakes. Yeah. Even in Siberia, okay, where snakes don't exist. The, 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 you know, the people of Siberia had never seen a snake, but part of their tradition of, from the shamans is there's these intertwined snakes. And so then he takes a bit of a turn and he basically says that when they deciphered DNA, you know, and the two guys that figured out the decoded the, the DNA, what he's, what he's trying to say in his book is that we had to see it under a microscope, whereas the, all the shamans for centuries back, for eon, you know, millenniums yeah. back, had seen that in their visions. So basically, that that the, they had decoded DNA way before we ever had microscopes. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you you're familiar with the caduceus, the uh, entwined snakes, as the no, of of the, the veterinarian, yeah. right? Yeah, and it that seems to come from the Hindu which seems to come from, you know, it, it comes to the Greeks, to the Egyptians, but before that, it seems to come from Babylonia, Sumeria, and then it goes to the Hindu as well. And it seems that that's an allegory for the two points of the cerebral spinal fluid coming up into the middle ventricle of the brain, which of course is where the pineal gland sits. And interestingly, when one looks at the sacred art of Sumeria, Babylon, or the Mesopotamia, down into Egypt, and then you get a little bit going into Greece as so well. You see two motifs, a pine cone, pineal gland is called that, mm -hmm. you know, because yep, it looks like shaped it. like a pine cone, and a bag, a little bag of tools. And it seems that this could be, we don't know, an allegory for the gift of consciousness to specifically create megalithic civilizations, agriculture, and so forth. Then you can get into very strange stuff of people saying, well, this comes down from aliens. Because mm -hmm. get what the That's Sumerians right. actually said that it did. So the earliest historical writings we've got, be they historical or mythological or some mixture of the two, come from Sumeria. And they were discovered in the 1840s, translated in the 1890s. They're still sitting in Oxford University about 30,000 of them, they chip away at them. Some of them are boring things like, you know, lists of 12 handbags, you know, 26 bushels of this or a contract for an apartment. Others are epic poems. That's where we've got Gilgamesh from. And the rest, the, and another bit is this gift list of kings who they say came from the sky, Anunnaki, blah, 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 blah. Be all this as it may, whether these were DMT induced visions or actually happened or something to do with the two. It seems that, that it's very interesting to me that that motif gets 
repeated over so many cultures and so many parts of the world. As you say, there they are in Siberia with no snakes. Yet there they are with the entwined serpents to the middle ventricle of the brain and the pine cone. You have activated your DMT, I would say on numerous occasions by now. Would, would you say so? Yeah, well, I don't think I've talked to you since, but I've started having this. So there's a, there's a, there is a, oh, let me finish about cosmic serpents. So okay. at the end of the book, basically he, his thing is that human form came to this planet from outer space and it was some sort of reptile. Right. This is the whole Anunnaki thing. And that's, that's what he's getting at. Serpent serpent. Yeah. As wisdom and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, so that I have had these experiences in the last six months to where, so there's a place when you are on a, in psychedelics, where you go into this world that's not this world. It's like a world of energy. It is, oh. if this is 3d, it feels 4d and it feels more real than this place. So I've had some spontaneous, non-psychedelic assisted experiences with this to where I, first time was in the middle, I'd, I'd had COVID. I got COVID. I was in traveling last year, got COVID, spent six days in the hotel room and flew home. And it was past the day I should be shedding it, but I was still, the test was still positive. So Robin had me sleeping in the horse trailer. So I'm just outside confined to the horse trailer. And I was laying on the bed in there about three o'clock one afternoon. And suddenly the right side of my body went into that space. So I'm, look, I'm, I'm laying there and I can see the two realities. There's the one on my left, which is this one we're in right now. And then this other side, the right side of my body is just vibrating and it. I can see it right there. And I get the feeling that they've come for me and this is it. And if I let myself go into it, this will disappear forever. And it scares the shit out of me and I pull back and it disappears. So I call a friend of mine who is a psychedelic assisted therapist and I'm like, dude, what's going on? And he goes, oh, that, that scared the hell out of me. And I call him, he goes, oh, that's great. Some people can go into those places on their own without any assistance. He said, but it's very scary to do when you're alone. And he said, you know, it's often better if there's someone there to hold your hand or whatever anyway. So when I got done with the horse trailer and I was allowed back in the house, I said to Robin, my wife, I told her about it. And I said, if we're sitting around sometime and I feel it coming on, if I just hold your hand and say, I'm going there, can I go? And you want to say, yes, all I want you to do is just hold my hand. She's like, okay. So it was about four days later, we were sitting we're actually having a deep and meaningful conversation. She was sitting on the couch facing me. I was sitting on our coffee table facing her. Our little dog Holden was on the couch beside Robin. And all of a sudden I felt it coming on a little bit. And I said, Hey, it's coming. Can I go there? And she said, sure. So I relaxed instead of drawing back, I kind of relaxed into it. And this might sound crazy to some people, maybe all people, but Robin and Holden and the couch turned into a hologram to where I could see through them. They were still there, but I could see through them. Everything else in the room was, was this reality, but they were glowing golden. She was still talking to me. She's, she was who she was, but she, I was, she would see through and she was glowing golden. So was the dog and so was the couch. And I'm just chat to her and I'm, and then all of a sudden it went away, but I've had a number of experiences like that, that were not induced with 
with psychedelics and I'm, I'm, I'm unsure what it means, but they, it's getting, it's getting easier to allow myself to go there. When I feel it coming on, instead of going, oh shit, that's a scary place. I can kind of go. And I had one here a while ago to where when I came back from that, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm good with it now. These, these two realities exist at the same time. And I don't, I, I didn't feel scared going there. And I know why I didn't feel scared going there. I haven't told you this bit. So I, the person I mentioned before, who's a psychedelic assisted psychotherapist, he hooked me up with an underground MDMA therapist. And so last, just after Christmas last year, just before new year, I went and did a, a underground a couple of days with this underground MDMA therapist. And basically the fear left me and I've only, I think I've only had one of those crazy journeys since then. But when it came, I was like, oh yeah, I'm good. I can just, I can just let go and, and flow into it. But it's, it is more real than this, more real than this reality. Interesting. You know, a cynic, not a skeptic, a cynic would say, oh, that's, you've just now taken so many psychedelics that you've now, you're now having flashbacks. What would you say to that? No, they're not flashbacks because it's not, it is a, it is a, when you go, when you go there, you are uh, energy. So you're vibrating a bazillion miles an hour. Like your body feels at, like you, and what's, what's interesting is I'm still in my, I can still be aware of my body. I can still be aware of my body buzzing, but I'm not, I don't have a body in that space, but I can feel my body buzzing. Now, yeah, well, a cynic can say whatever they want. I mean. Right. If I had to talk to me five years ago and said some of this stuff, you're a whack job, but I've, ex I've experienced it. And uh, yeah, I mean, well, and well, if a cynic said you've done so many psychedelics, I would say I've done five. Exactly. Once each I've, I've done five. Yes. I've done five one time each. And some people do them, you know, every weekend, you know, like MDMA going to raves or whatever. I, I've only ever done them in healing situations with a lot of intention and I, but if a cynic said that to me i wouldn't even argue with them i wouldn't try to make well, my point because they've got no frame of reference to my point but i do have a frame of reference to their point because six to seven years ago i would have had the same thoughts so i i, I get where they're coming from what i find interesting well, obviously the whole thing is interesting again going back to experiences living with hunting and gathering peoples for whom this is part of normality, albeit a very joyful, intense normality. I've in not spontaneously outside of rituals. I mean, I've had the odd out of body experience of that sort of thing, but that's not so unusual, but I have had experiences where I fell into what they would call the spirit world. And then was aware of myself sitting in the room or sitting in the hut or wherever while also looking at a completely different reality, almost superimposed upon that reality. And both times the shaman, the healer noticed, reached in and pulled me out and just said, don't go there without training because you're going to encounter things from the human psyche that you're not ready for yet. And that's why we have a training process for this, but it's quite natural to fall into it. But of course, when a hunter is going after kudu, they must become kudu when you said how did these Amazonian tribes know which plant, well, the plants told them I've 
been told very similar things. For example, I remember in my first weeks with the Bushmen, observing how they could determine where animals were at a distance from their camps and asking them how, and they said, oh, well, you know, we, we dance, so the healers dance, and then we ask, go to, there they go, ask the animals where they are, and the animals say, oh, well, we're over here. Or, and I, and I also said, how, how's it you don't run into lion so often? Because we're in lion country, central Kalahari game was so very, very aggressive lions there. And they said, oh, again, yeah, no, we dance and we, we make contact with the lions. We ask them where they're going to be. We go the other way. And they would say this sort of thing in a very matter of fact sort of a way, and then sort of immediately talk about the fact that their toe hurt or the roof needed mending or whatever. It's um, like they, I put it in my GPS in my iPhone. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which it came out like that. Would be pretty magical if we were looking at it from even an early 20th century perspective, a GPS in a phone or the phone. So one of the things which I love about conversations like this is it reminds us that miracle is an everyday thing. And going back to horses, I, I feel that it's miraculous that we can even ride horses. I feel that it is a shamanic experience because we have to get over, we have to shapeshift. Uh, we have to come out of ourselves as something that wants to eat the horse. And now we're getting to a point in horsemanship where we have to come out of ourselves as somebody who simply wants to use the horse. This is something quite new in our consciousness, even as horse people, this is really the last 20, 30 years or so, that it's not just a practical use thing. It's to do with more than that. It's getting back to more towards the hunter gatherer thing. We don't just hunt and kill. You have a, a, a full-on relationship with the animals. All the healing dancers of the Bushmen are using certain animal energies, shape-shifting into animals, not just for hunting, also for healing or for all sorts of things. Because of course, we're organisms tied up with the other organisms in a world of organisms. And to feel that we're separated from them, of course, is a great illusion. But nonetheless, it's the illusion we've been trained into. And when I've been with really, you talked about being, seeing the hologram or the energy of Robin and the dog and the couch, the really good senior healers can exist in the trance, the deep healing trance where they're talking to ancestor spirits and pulling cancers out of people's bodies and doing that sort of thing. While at the same time, having a, a cigarette and sort of chatting to someone else over there and you can see in flickerings of the eye muscles and this sort of thing as they're going between one and the other and beginning to handle it very gracefully. You, you made the an analogy of ice skating with horses, almost like an ice skater, sort of psychic ice skater going effortlessly between these realities. It seems that you have, through this horse who bounces back legs, taken somewhat of an interesting journey into the world of organisms and what's beyond organisms and what we can perceive and what we can't. How has this affected your horsemanship? Have you had these experiences now in the dual realities or seeing the real realities around or on horses? No, 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 not, not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Yeah. I did. When I did the psilocybin journey last year, was that a, it was actually at a horse place in Oregon. 
And uh, most of it was a inward journey. Like I was, my eyes were closed, you know, I was laying under, under a blanket. But later on when I kind of came out of that and I said, I want to go see the horses. And so we go out in the past with the horses. So I was wearing shorts and socks and hiking boots. And I had these, I had these socks on that I bought. I was in Montana last year and I did a clinic there and, and I went into this, the next day I went into this you know, trading post sort of a thing. And they had these really cool Native American designed socks. Special Montana socks. Yes. And these socks were ridiculously expensive. Like they were 30 bucks a pair for socks or something. That might be, not be ridiculously expensive, but for me it is. I'd buy a six pack of socks for three dollars. You know what I mean? So these are, these are basically, these are FU money socks. You know what I mean? Like no one needs to spend 30 bucks on a pair of socks, even though some people with lots of money might spend a hundred bucks on a pair of socks. But for me. A lot of money a pair of, spent on a pair of socks. So I've got these FU money socks. I've spent 30 bucks on a pair of socks. And I hadn't been wearing them this day. I did the psilocybin journey. And, you know, like I said, I was with the lady for quite a while. Then I needed a masculine energy. So I ended up laying, sitting down, or actually went laying with my head in the, the man's lap, holding his hand, talking to him for about two hours. But then at some point I'm like, I need to go see the horses. And so I was pretty much mostly through the, the, any of the, hallucinogenic effects, you know, the visual effects you might get from, from psilocybin. I didn't get many visual effects because for the most part, my eyes were closed, but by this point in time, I'm not really getting any visuals, but I want to go see the horses. So we walk out this pasture to the horses and on the way out there, I, as I get up to the horses, I realize I can itchy foot and I look down and one of my socks I've got on the inside out. So all the little threads that make up all this Native American design that's on the outside have all caught all these stickers, these seeds from the grasses. And so one of the horses walks up to me and he's standing right there. And instead of me talking to him, I pull my boot off and I pull this sock off and I start to pull these grass seeds out of this sock because I've got, this is important to me. These are my, this is my FU money socks, isn't it? And I start to pick these grass seeds out of this sock and this horse just sidles up to me and just bumps me with his shoulder and knocks me off balance because I'm standing on one foot, knocks me off balance. And I look at him and all of a sudden I realize he's basically, forget the fucking socks. It's not about the socks. And so I just put that sock in my pocket, put my shoe back on. And then I was present there with the horses, but it was, he was like, forget your F you money socks. You don't need to worry about the socks right now. Do you anticipate that some of these experiences are now going to come to you while with horses? I mean, why, why wouldn't they? Horses are still a large part of your life. And I if so, what, what do you, what do you anticipate that bringing you to? I don't anticipate it, but I'm open to it. Okay. I, I think anticipation is, there's a certain level of expectation and I, I just think the energy is completely different when you are open to things versus when you are hoping that will happen or sure that will happen or whatever. And I, 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 all my life I've been, a, you know, I've got this far with just being open to possibilities. What, so what do I think will come from it? I think, so a lot of people, when they go into those spaces with, with plant medicines or whatever, they have conversations with the divine, with other beings, other entities, other energies that give them information. 
in my experiences, I have not had any of that at all yet, but I know people who regularly have sessions with their horses with, with psilocybin. They'll on a Sunday, they'll go and take some psilocybin and go sit with the horses. I get messages from several friends of mine all the time. Like you wouldn't believe what the horses told me today. I had a, had a afternoon, Sunday afternoon mushroom session with the horses. And they said this and this and this. What and generally like, are I the horses saying? Are they saying banal things like, could we have better pasture, please? Or are they saying, no, is it no. from the outer gods? What are they yes, saying? No, it's, it's, it's the big, it's the big message. Like, you know, the world, we, we have to start getting along. We ha we're all connected. We have to start, we're all, we need to start to heal the system type thing is the, the general thrust of the thing. The general thrust of the, of the, of the whole thing is run, tell the others. Our horses, our horses try to tell us this fairly routinely. In fact, I think so. I think, I think Sherlock showed up to, to give me a little, like that horse knocked me off balance with that foot. Like forget about the sock. Yeah. Okay, I think Sherlock showed me to say, Hey, forget about, forget about the way you're looking at things. There's another way to look at things. And that leads you, you know, it is a. Yeah, I believe it is a, an evolution and you can't skip steps, you know, so your levels of your levels of consciousness are your levels of consciousness. And there's lots of levels of consciousness. And, you know, I think I'm very, very, very early on in the journey, but you know, you, I, I, I think they're just, for me, the horses are kind of pointing us in the, in the direction of given that we have a, a, a relationships with so many different species you know we we have all the domesticated animals and then of course we have wild animals why the horse what's what's the special thing that the horse has to tell us in this or is it what all animals would tell us what do you think i'm thinking it's what all animals would tell us but we don't want to ride the lions you know what i mean and so lions don't carry us anywhere. It's true. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. I think, I think in like a dog will want to be around you all the time. You don't have to you don't necessarily have to change how you go about things to get the dog to want to hang with you. But horse, you know, like you said before, we're predators, they're prey animals. And I think if we want, we, we, we're passionate about horses. We love horses. We love to be around them. We love to do things with them. But they, I think they present us with challenges in our, in our ambitions with horses, they present us with challenges and those challenges are overcome by going up levels of consciousness, seeing things differently. You know, it seems like if, if you're, you know, you talked about school, you know, like this kind of school system you grew up in and the church and the state, and we want to. We want to make you adversarial so that you can fight wars for us or whatever. You know, if you want to be adversarial with a horse, you'll have all sorts of difficulties. But if you, if you're passionate about getting things done with a horse, after a while, the adversarial thing doesn't work and you start to look at things a bit differently. And then you realize, oh, I didn't have, he was only being adversarial because I was being adversarial. And I think, I think as we go along, I'm, yeah, these days I'm trying to see how much I can do with, without doing anything so to speak. And I'm not talking about animal communication. That's, that comes later, but just. Do you think. Just, like, that Mustang, just letting, let, letting that Mustang know how much I noticed. 
made all of a difference in the world than if I had to tried to, to train him to do something or, you know, that sort of thing. You know, there's an old saying with horses, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. I actually think that's kind of bunk. They don't know how much you care until they know how much you notice, how present you can be. Then, you know, you see a lot of people who care a lot about their horses and they run up and they pat them and they feed them and they do this and I love my horse, but they're not communicating any awareness of things. And I, I have just found that, that with horses, the more you can be, communicate your awareness. To, it gets down to the point to where it ends up where it's all about communicating your awareness of their awareness, of your awareness of their awareness, of your awareness of their awareness, if you want to keep going like that. But that's, you know, you were talking about elephants a minute ago, it's not about animals. There's a book I've been reading called Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel by a fellow named Carl Safina. I don't know if you ever heard of Carl. How do you spell Safina? S-A-F-I-N-A. S-A-F-I-N-A, Safina. Carl? Yeah. Carl with a C or, an, or, a, or with a K? With a C. With a C. Carl Safina. Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel is the name of the book. But in right. there, he's talking about how, you know, with all scientists, like in the scientific world, anthropomorphizing is a good way to get yourself laughed at. Like we've been taught, do not anthropomorphize. Do not anthropomorphize. You know, animals don't have feelings. And in that book, at the, right at the very end of one of the chapters, he was talking with someone and they said to him, well, what you have to remember is, I think it was, to, there's, a, there's a chapter on elephants, there's a chapter on whales, and there's a chapter on, I forget what the other animal is. But anyway, the, this person said, you, you know, you have to remember that they're not animals, uh, they're not humans. And his reply was, yes, but you have to remember that humans are animals. Right. No, I agree. And I've often wondered, you know, we have, the, we have a particular love affair with the horse in our culture. It's what we built our military civilizations on ever since the first nomads came out of the steppe into Europe on those horses, the Yamnaya, as they seem to refer to them in the Neolithic era, the first hordes to sweep across Europe and bring death and the sword to everybody on a horse goes back into prehistory. And it seems that we have used the horse to project our ambitions and our egos as well as ourselves. I'm projecting myself from here in Germany to Hungary because I can get there on a horse quicker than I can on foot. So it's a real projection and it's a emotional and metaphorical projection as well. They make us bigger, faster, stronger, more beautiful until we get off and then we just go back to being monkeys again. That said, the time I spent in Mongolia, where, okay, the, the horsemanship's quite, quite brutal, but their relationship with the horse is on every level. They, they live it, they wear it, they drink it, they eat it. They absolutely do love it and revere it. And they built the civilization, well, the, the, the herding culture that again brought fire to the sword. We kill everybody now from the Pacific to the Mediterranean. And then somewhere in the 17th century, some Tibetan monks wandered over the Altai Plateau and started talking about this thing called Buddhism to the Mongols. And in one generation, basically, they stopped. 
No more Kublai Khan. No more Genghis Khan. No more Tamerlane. No more. They'll fight a defensive war. Poor, poor bastards are sandwiched between Russia and China, which is an uncomfortable squeeze. But the nicest people. And I want and a strong shamanic tradition and so on. Obviously, I took my son there for healing. I wonder if we, these, we Western post conquest colonial people who inherited the horses as a means of conquest are now going through that same education that the Mongols went through 400 years ago. For us, it all seems very new. This thing of, well, to have a relationship with the horse, to not just want the horse to do this thing for you in order to win this ribbon or whatever, because competition is a form of conquest, form of battle, form of competition, adversarial exercise. What are your thoughts on this? Do, do you feel that therefore the horse because of this, because we've used the horse probably more than any other animal that you can ride. We have used elephants in war. We have used camels in war. Okay, fine. We've used donkeys and mules in war, but not like the horse because of the speed, the, the maneuverability, the da, da, da. So we've really committed some sins on the backs of these things. And they've given this sort of, they're, any, they, they're neutral. It's like they've given us, okay, here I am. I'm a horse. You want to use me for this? Okay. You know, I'd rather you didn't perhaps, but okay. Now we're coming to this other thing here. You are, maybe you'll have these experiences on horses or with horses where you're beginning to see these parallel realities. Where's it all going? I think it's all lead, it's leading us all to consciousness, really. Well, I, you know, I think, you know, as much bad as that's come out of the internet, you know, as far as social media or whatever. Bit um, of an understatement there, but yeah. 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 I think th these days there's no reason to listen to the dogma of your parents or your government or your church or whatever. Like in the middle ages, you know, you. That's what you got. Oh, yeah, that's what you got. There's, there's no reason to, there's no reason to be ignorant these days. And so ideas can spread so much easier. And I, I just find it in the, in the horse community in the last five years or so, just in the last five years, people being just so more aware of, of the benefits of connection and empathy and, you know, non-confrontational means of communicating. And I don't, I don't know, I think, I think the horses are leading us to, you know, help more people just be more aware of consciousness. I think, I think that's where they're going. And is that where you want to go? What's next for you? You, you've, you, you are still a successful trainer. You haven't stopped doing clinics and shows. You, you do still travel around doing that. I don't, I haven't, I've done any shows since, since 2018, since the world of question games is the last time I okay. competed. Okay. Not compete. Well, shows in the co competition sense. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 You, you're giving clinics, you're helping people, you know, yeah. also you're still helping people with the techniques as well as, because obviously yeah. there's th these two sides, rational and irrational must exist 
you know, parallel simultaneously. You self-actualized, you know, if you look at you from the outside, when I met you, you know, I could say, yes, this is somebody who, whether you knew you were following your gut or not, did, whether you knew you were following your passions or not, did, had a passion for the horse, you had a passion for this Western thing, you followed it, you followed your love for a woman as well. You followed love really the whole way. And whether you knew it or not, you did. You loved the horse. You loved this motif and this lifestyle. You loved this woman. You loved this place. And now you're moving deeper into California. I know you've bought this new facility. You've become financially independent through the training videos to the point where you can now pick and choose what you do. And what you're doing is interesting. You have this podcast is sharing of information. It's fascinating. You have started the summit, bringing all these very interesting people from the horse world together. When I was there last year, it was my first experience of being in a non-adversarial horse event. I'd, I'd, I'd never experienced that before. Mind blowing. Now you ha are exploring consciousness. And I know that you bought this new place in Paso Robles. What's going to happen there? What's going on with that? What we want to start, you know, a lot of times at clinics, helping people get along with their horses better, they have a transformational experience. They have to, they have a, a change in perspective. You know, a lot of times, like I said, they'll have a transformational experience, but they don't come to the clinic signing up for a transformational experience. A lot of times it'll just happen because of it. But so there's a lot of places you can't go in front of a bunch of spectators with people because they didn't sign up for that sort of thing in that situation. And so what we are starting to do now is we want to have more transformational type experiences. Like after the, after the podcast summit last year, Rob and I looked at each other and like, we want more of that. We want more of that type of energy. And so what we're going to start doing is having, I'm still doing, we're starting out, we're going to jump right into something new. We're going to start out doing what we used to do which is the clinics, but we have them at our place. And the, what we're doing now is three day clinics. The second and third day are basically the same clinic they've been before, but the first day is more mindset stuff, more transformational stuff with no spectators. You know, the clinic's not open for, for spectators until the clinic starts on the Saturday morning. That's the beginning. But then we've also booked, we released a, what are we calling it? A, I'm not even sure what we're calling it. What are we calling it? We are having a. I can't think of the name of the thing we're having. We're having a weekend retreat. Thank you. We're having a retreat at our place. The first one is in, I think it's in May and it sold out in three hours when we released it. And it's, it's people don't bring their horses. We're going to have these retreats. People in from wherever we will do some horse stuff, but it, it will be with our horses, but it's more about mindset. You know, Robin wants to lead people through ice baths. We want to have meditation. We want to have some yoga. We want to have all that sort of stuff we, with the mind, with the idea that this is going to help people when they go home with their horses. This is usually, you know, usually people are having problems with their horses because of their perception of what's going on. Not the problem is not, a, you know, it's like Captain Jack Sparrow says, the problem is not the problem. It's your, it's your attitude about the problem. It's a problem. So yeah, we want to start having more things like that. And then we're going to have weekends 
to where we will have one of the podcast guests come and Robin and I and the podcast guests will work with the people a weekend. But, you know, and I guess if you think about it, it's all about expanding consciousness. But all, all of this is about, it's trying to help people get along with their horses better, but it's, it's getting to the real reason they're not, a lot of, not getting along with their horses very well. And a lot of times it is their perception of things. It's their, it might be their negative self-talk. It might be how they view the world, those, those sorts of things. But we really want to get more into the transformational space. And, and as it goes along, it'll obviously it'll morph into something that it's not yet, but we, you know, we have a 42 acre place. We, you know, it's got, it's got a creek run to the middle of it. It's got to be old forest on it. It's got a huge, it's got two arenas. It's, it's got a lot of places to do a lot of things. So we're pretty excited about it. Do you think you're going to do non-horse stuff too? Just stuff about consciousness period? Yes. Well, I imagine we'll definitely end up getting into that. I mean, I think initially I will have other people come there to do that and I will be the student because I'm a long way from teaching that stuff. But I, you know, I think my, my, it looks like my purpose here is to help people look in that direction. I'm not sure I'm, I'm the guy that's supposed to lead them to the end of that rabbit hole, but I think I'm the guy that's supposed to kind of go, Hey, you look down here. It's kind of interesting. Well, you said something very interesting at the beginning of this conversation which was that when you began doing these things, you weren't doing them with an idea of monetizing. I mean, obviously you wanted to make a living, but you weren't, you didn't do the Equitana thing to monetize it. You didn't do even the online stuff at first to monetize it, even though now that's actually how you become independent. You did it really to be of service. And then it took on its own energy. Is that what you're going to do with this new place? Well, I'd certainly like it to pay for itself. <laughs> that does. Um, you know what? Yes. It's, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's not, we didn't buy this new place because, because we're going to do this thing to, you know, it, it, it's the same as everything else. It's just like where my, my gut was going. Like, like I said, after the. The podcast summit last year I said to Robin, that's the space we need to occupy. That's what I want to do more of. I want to, I want to have more of those transformational experiences like that, both myself and other people. Cause I don't think anybody, whether you're a presenter or you're one of the spectators there that was at that thing that was not completely moved by that, everything that happened there. I would agree. So people will be listening to this. We're coming towards the end now. They'll have some questions. One thing I want to say to the listeners is if you've got questions and you must have questions after listening to this, email them to us, write them, write them down. We'll give you the, the email at the end of the, sh of the show. And we will ask Warwick to answer them. If he will, will he actually ask him to come back on and answer them? Because it would be nice to hear it's direct from him. But in the closing minutes of this conversation, people will be listening to this with dilemmas and the dilemmas will be, you're a horsey guy, so some of them will have horse dilemmas. Some of it will be life and consciousness dilemmas. Some of it will be, how can I learn to trust my gut 
or get in touch with my emotion style levels, but I don't want to go and activate DMT. I'm terrified. It's not legal where I am. Blah, blah, blah. It's just not part of my thing. Blah, blah, blah. And of course, we know that there's many roads to these things. Let's say that every dilemma is really one dilemma. And it's, I'm unhappy, I'm suffering. What's your advice? Well, I think I'm, an, I'm unhappy and suffering too. So <laughs> what would my... Well, advice after all be? that work? <laughs> after all that work, yeah. Go get your money back. I, no, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm really with this whole self-development journey. I, I've, I've just started, you know, I've, I've just started through another door to where, oh, you know, I've just topped the mountain and I'm like, oh, now I can see another mountain. I thought I was getting to the top of this mountain. Now I can see another mountain. What would I say? I, I you know, I, I love how in our conversations, Rupert, you're always talking about the hunter gatherers and how that's how we evolved to live. And the, it seems like all the problems we have these days have to do with a lack of connection, you know, lack of, and, and a lot of that's the way we were, you know, the way we were parented, the way society had us be. And I, I, I just think that finding ways to connect to the rest of the world is kind of the answer to the thing. And I, we talked about horses before. I think that is one of the ways that we can start to connect with, you know, for me, I'm still not the best with people, the horses I'm, I'm getting so much better with the, with the connection with them. I, d I don't need to have walls up. I don't need to present anything other than the true me around horses. And I'm still working on that with, with, with people, but I do think that, you know, as the Beatles said, all we need is love, basically. It's that connection, I think, is in whatever way you can start to work on on connection, I think that is the way forward. Look for connection and take it from there. Words to live by. All right, Warwick, this has been amazing. I want to continue this conversation. So would you consent to coming on again so that we oh, I'd love to. In the meantime, I'm going to go back over these books, which I've been writing down. So let's just, because I'm sure people will want to, to know them. So it started with, is it Dave Asprey? Dave Asprey. Is it A-S-B-U-R-Y? P. Asprey. Asprey. Okay. A-S-P-E-R-Y. And that's The Cosmic Serpent? No, no. Dave Asprey is the guy that wrote that book called Game Changers. Game Changers. Dave Asprey, Game Changers. And then Strauss. Dave Asprey has Dave Asprey has a podcast. He's very into Dave Asprey's very into the health and wellness sphere sort of thing, you know. Okay. Straussman. Rick Straussman wrote Rick Straussman. DMT the spherical the spirit molecule. DMT the spirit molecule. Molecule. Uh Carl Safira. Safina, S-A-F-I-N-A. S-A-F-I-N-A. Carl Safina, title of the book. is called Beyond Words, What Animals Think and Feel. You know, it was interesting. I was going to mention, I had a guy on the podcast, an Australian guy that lives in Spain named Lockie Phillips, and he is very big into the emotions of animals. And he said, they say that animals don't feel emotions. 
he said, they do feel emotions. They just don't have the same thoughts about them that we do. Which I thought was very interesting. What thoughts does he say animals have about their emotions? He says they don't. Okay. You know, it's kind of like, I've seen it, you know, in Australia, like, like growing up on the farm, like there might be a sheep that's got a broken leg. And so it's out there eating the grass. I've got a broken leg. You know, if you, if you, you know, I don't know if what you've got planned for next week, but let's say you were driving somewhere and had a car accident and broke your leg. You would have a broken leg, but you'd also have all this other anguish about your broken leg because, oh, I was going to go to, and I was going to, and now I can't, and, 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 and. You know, all these things about that broken leg, whereas an animal, okay, broken leg. Here's some grass. I'm going to eat it. Some people would say that's being shut down if a human were to do that. If the human were to do what the animal does? Yeah. If the human were to say, well, I'm not going to attach any emotion. Therefore, I'm shut down from my emotions. Given that we're emotional animals, humans. Yeah. And that, that, that could be, but that, you know, you've got to think about shutdown. Our fr mutual friend, Jane Pike, is the one that really helped me with this. You know, once I learned that I was, I figured out that I'd been shut down in my life, then I had a lot of judgment about being shut down. And then I realized, then I figured out why I was shut down. And, and, and what Jane made me realize is she said, you had a good reason to shut down. And she said, that shutdown, you've judged it poorly all your life, but when it happened, it was your best friend. It was your body taking care of you. Your body, that's supposed to happen. Your body is supposed to do that at that time, but you've hung on to it to where you don't need it anymore. But, and that's, that's what trauma is. Trauma is not what happened to you. Trauma is getting stuck in a certain place and not working through yeah. the thing. I mean, you know, if any animal gets, you know, I don't know, a baby gazelle gets grabbed by a lion. Okay. He's going to go limp. He's going to go into that flop thing. And the lion takes him back to his cubs. And if that lion sits him down for two seconds, cause he thinks he's dead, that little baby gazelle is going to jump up and run off. And that, that's the completion of that trauma cycle. Whereas we're not get eaten alive by lions and we can get stuck in that, that place to where I'm just going to go into the freeze or the flop state right now, because it's going to help me if I get a chance to escape, I'll escape. But then we don't, we don't actually have that. We don't actually haven't been captured by a lion, but yeah. So Jane was the one that made me forgive, I don't know if it's myself, but, but, but come to terms with, Hey, that was a good thing. When it happened, all emotions are supposed to happen. Yeah, sure. But they're supposed to have a beginning and an end. And I think we get stuck in cycles of not working through. Right. I guess, I guess that in the wild state, let's say a deer gets hunted by a wolf, gets away, doesn't then need to have 10 years of therapy about it, goes back to its original behavior pretty quick. What it might do is go through a shuddering phase where yep. it, it shudders off the adrenaline, shudders off the cortisol before it does that. And of course it's got to look around and make sure that there are no other rules, etc. but it's not going to yeah, carry there's it. A book, yeah. There's a really good book called why zebras don't have ulcers, which is about, okay. which is about that. By who? I don't. Why zebras don't have ulcers. That's good. Yeah. Why zebras don't have ulcers. I can't remember who that was by. So of course they might because horses have ulcers, but yeah. But probably because of what humans do to them. Yeah. 
Yes, because of our yeah. the way we keep in captivity. We've been talking about different things today. And I said, I'm now down the next level of my rabbit hole. And I'm going to give you guys a book that I'm currently listening to that is so amazing. It's called Healing the Shame That Binds You. Healing the, the shame, shame That Binds That you. Binds You. By a fellow named John Bradshaw. John with an H. Yes, Brad John with an H. Sure. Bradshaw. Yeah. And another one, I tell you what, I've been down the rabbit hole of learning about all this stuff for a number of years now, but I listened to one book last year that basically covered all the stuff I've been reading about for the last five years. And it's The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate. The Myth of, of normal. normal by Gabor Mate. M A T A B O R. And then G A B O R. Mate as in mate. Mate with an accent on the end. M A T E with a acute accent on the end. And and that and that book basically it, it's you would you would love it because he's all about you know what's become normal is not normal for how we evolve. You know, like he's it's almost like hunter gatherers had it sorted out and we've screwed it up yep. ever since. It's a it's a yeah very very good book. By the way, you also the cosmic serpent that was. Jeremy, Jeremy Narby, N-A-R-B-Y. Jeremy Narby, the Cosmic Summer. Yeah, back to the back to the hunter-gatherer thing. I mean, of course, we talked about a prey animal shuddering and shaking off the trauma of the of getting away, or going into a collapse mode where it might spring up and run away. But also, if it finds itself getting eaten alive, going into that state of supreme endorphin where it then doesn't it's it's sort of anesthetized doesn't really feel pain and there are these mechanisms and it goes into a very peaceful sort of a state we've seen this in wildlife documentaries i've seen it happen in yeah. africa and i think that's the shutdown state what's interesting about of course if you're the hunter gatherer the humans with our consciousness with our different seeming different consciousness is in our wild state we have the shaman in our state we have somebody within the the community whose job is to wash our psychic dirty laundry every 10 days or so like that often about every 10 days or so we of course haven't had that for an awful long time so now we have inherited generations of psychic dirty laundry where that whole mechanism for quality of life really beyond survival, thriving, has gone. It seems to me that this conversation happens to have happened through horses, but has led to a series of washings of the psychic dirty laundry in the hunter-gatherer style that has now deepened not only your way of going about the horse, but of course, the way of going about life, meaning that you, through this, found a way of producing that connection, which again is part of the hunter-gatherer thing, the, the clan, the extended family, we, we work for each other's benefit. We do not work against each other in that situation because we just simply will not survive. It's not practical. But with agriculture, it, becomes comp it became competitive. And one of the things which I was so impressed about with 
the first the journey on podcast your podcast and uh, then the summit was you have produced one of those connected communities out of the post hunter gatherer state i would be interested to see if where journey on goes and where your new place goes and whatever new media you put out there which of course you're going to because you're not going to stop it'll be part of that opus of bringing us all back towards that connectivity it's important work it's important work that you're doing yeah and i yeah I, that's yeah i think you got it where we're heading to i just you know it's kind of like how i've got to this point there's been no plan to get to this point and so the, i really don't have any plans to get to the the next point i'm just kind of open to whatever the universe points me at. Yeah. Which will probably be ever greater degrees of connectivity because mm. it seems to have gone that way. It started with service. What greater service could there be than helping with connectivity? All right. Amazing. Thank you. I think. If it's all right, we leave it there for this time. I'm going to go away and stew and mull, come back with a bunch of questions. Please do. Can we resume? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to resume. All right. Then I look forward to it. It's booked. Warwick, thank you. An honor as always. For the listeners, you've been listening to the Live Free, Ride Free podcast. I will have all Warwick's contacts. You can go and live in his house and eat his food and make bad smells in his toilet and he will not mind the next three months, but his wife might. But I will tell you how to be in contact with him. The Journey On podcast, you need to check it out. The Journey On Summit, you need to check it out. And Attuned Horsemanship, you need to check it out. But I will be giving all the web and other links as well. Anything last that you want to add before we sign out? No, that's just that it's been a, an absolute honor and a pleasure chatting with you again, as it, as it is always. Well, thank you. All right. Uh, I'm going to do the click off thing and I guess we will reconvene. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join our website, newtrailslearning.com to check out our online courses and live workshops in Horseboy Method, Movement Method, and Athena. These evidence-based programs have helped children, veterans, and people dealing with trauma around the world. We also offer a horse training program and self-care program for riders on longridehome.com. These include easy-to-do online courses and tutorials that bring you and your horse joy. For an overview of all shows and programs, go to rupertisaacson.com. See you on the next show. And please remember to press subscribe and share.